just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's one of our most important decisions. Start a pitcher or sit him. But how do we know, and how does it change? I'll ask Paul Sporer about that and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 18th. It's show number 31 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. In part one, we'll discuss start-sit decisions for pitchers, drafting those name closers, and pitchers who had big changes in their first half, second half ex-fifs. Then in part two, Paul and I will talk about second half hitters, hold or fold on some struggling starters, and some rest of season boons and banes. Then we'll have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitters including Minnesota third baseman Royce Lewis and Texas outfielder J.P. Martinez, and American League pitchers Bo Brisky and Grayson Rodriguez. Then it's over to the National League with hitter news including C.J. Abrams and some other stolen base threats, including Cincinnati sensation Ellie De La Cruz, and National League pitchers including Cubs right-hander Marcus Stroman in the Chicago rotation and the return of Yuri Perez in Miami. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at updates on St. Louis shortstop Mason Wynn and Detroit infielder Colt Keith. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Diego catcher Ethan Salas. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the remarkable resurgence of Lance Lynn in Los Angeles. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Cardinals are zapping their lineup. We got to talk some baseball. Well, the struggling St. Louis Cardinals announced on Thursday that they're calling up shortstop Mason Wynn from AAA. He'll take the roster spot of outfielder Lars Nootbaar, who was placed onto the IL with an abdominal injury. In just under 500 plate appearances at AAA this season, Wynn has 18 homers and 17 stolen bases at an almost 90% success rate. He's scored 99 runs, which leads all of minor league baseball. And he's slashing 288, 359, 474. That's an 833 OPS. Manager Oliver Marmol called Wynn an electric player for sure. And in what has been a blackout year in St. Louis, they could use a little electricity. If your lineup could use a similar jolt, get ready with those fab bits for this weekend. And remember, Rob Gordon updates his earlier analysis of Mason Wynn in this week's Minor League Minute later in the show. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer. 
from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. How's it going, Patrick? Going great. I uh, just made a trade uh, earlier today and I saw that my trade partner made another trade, so I'm trying to keep my spreadsheets up to up to the uh, events of the day, but uh, it's getting very interesting in uh, in this particular league where our trading is allowed. I love that. Um, I'm not in I'm only in one trading league right now. So I don't have that trade excitement as much, but trades down the stretch because most of my leagues would go until um, at least through August to kind of give you a month after the deadline. And there was always a lot of fun with that excitement of seeing how teams were going to adjust and then maybe answer the contenders that make some trades. And I always liked the, those kind of flurries. These days, I don't have as much time to get into it because trades can take some time, but I do enjoy uh, I do enjoy trade leagues. It is a lot of fun. And as you said, part of the fun is uh, I made a trade and I calculate how I think I've improved in the various categories. And then right away, the guy I traded with made another trade, which has confounded a, a lot of what I was expecting to gain because some of the gains sometimes, as in this case, you're expecting to make the gain at the expense of your trading partner because yep. knowing that, and he's willing to do that because he's gaining in some other categories more than he's losing in that one. And, but then he turns around and, and makes another deal. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very interesting. So you, you mentioned that you're only in one trading league this year. How many leagues are you playing in all and how are you doing overall? Well, you, you know, Patrick, um, I've been on this show a few different times and I, I've told you, you know, some crazy numbers in the past, but I've really wrangled it in these past few years to where right now it's only about five leagues that have, you know, weekly management of, of rosters, right? I have gladiator leagues, which you just do the draft and it, that was done. Um, I have some draft champions where you don't do pickups. So you draft all 50 guys, but as far as like week to week leagues, I've only got five right now and I'm doing okay. I have one that's a total dud or actually two that are total duds. So it's like three that are fine, two total duds. My main event with the NFBC has been my primary focus. And, you know, do you ever have those seasons, Patrick, where you're not doing super well, but you're really happy with, with how you progressed? Because that's kind of what I'm doing this year. I was in dead last two months into the season. Just, it was looking terrible but I felt like the team was better. I had this crazy misshapen team, 16 hitting points, 47 pitching points. And I've grinded all the way up to fourth out of 15. And I feel great about that. It's 42 hitting points, 49 pitching points now, but it's seven points away, or excuse me, 13 points away from reaching third, which is where the money comes in. And I just don't know that there's going to be enough time for it. And yet I'm very proud of grinding all the way up to fourth, making the good moves and getting there, but sometimes you come up short. Where do you stand on that? Like, do you have to cash to be considered good, or do you take any anything from leagues that you build up in, even if you come up short of a money spot? No, I feel, I think, pretty much like you do. Some, some of my favorite years, especially in tout, are years where, for one reason or another, as you said, you start the year in a bad place, and you just keep working and grinding, and I've had past years where I was as low as 11th and finished fourth or third and just by grinding. And it's really hard in an AL only league because the oh, waiver yeah. claims area is so short. And so there's a lot of gambling on prospects, like monitoring the minor leagues to sign those guys who might be coming up two weeks early so you can get them for a dollar or two. And mm -hmm. there's all that kind of stuff. And I, I really appreciate my, my own effort in that sense. And the other part about it, Paul, and I'm sure that a lot of people 
think this way. When you're playing in a league with a lot of good players, and in the NFBC, they're pretty much all good players, or at least they're willing yep. to stake a fair amount of money on their ability to play the game, which means there's only a certain amount that you can do at your draft to get yourself in a position to compete. And the rest of it is how much you can do it with your own work, but there's still a fairly substantial chunk of luck involved, especially in the and, overall race. And I'm glad you said that because it is so true. And I think a lot of us don't want to admit that because we want to think that, you know, we're doing the work, we're putting in the skill. It's not to diminish anybody's skill, but anybody that's played this game for more than, I don't know, two months even, I think in the in the midst of your very first season of playing this game, you understand yeah. how much uh, luck it plays into it, 100%. So I totally agree with that. Even the people that are at the top of the overall right now would fully say that, yes, they've had things go their way in addition to the quality skills that they've had. And I mentioned those three teams ahead of me. All three of them are in the top 100 of the overall. Two of them are in the top 40. So I also got a draw with three excellent teams. And for those that don't know, the main event has an, uh, 795 teams in it. And there's a 1 to 795 league. Like the overall is its own giant league. And then you play your individual league. So, yeah, it's been a grind, but I am proud of myself. I, I would love to get those 13 points and at least finish third. But even if I just finished fourth, I'll be pretty happy with that because I feel like I played really well this year. And, you know, I'm a big poker fan and people that play poker know that you have to stick with your process. And if you're playing good poker, sometimes the cards aren't going to go your way. You can play, quote unquote, perfect poker and those rivers don't come out your way and you lose, you know, two two uh, two buy-ins or something. You're like, that was a crappy night, but you played well. And I, I imagine it's the same way for real-life players, too. You go 0 for 4 in a day, but you hit three barrels right at somebody. You're getting high fives in the dugout saying, hey, man, you smoked the ball today. You keep doing that. You're going to get hit. So, you know, maybe it's a little bit of coping because I probably am going to come up short of the money, but I feel good about grinding all the way up there to fourth uh, after being dead last two months in. And I think it's important if you're going to play year after year, as we all do, that you have to look for the positive in whatever happened during your year. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you fought your way up from 11th to 4th or from 14th to 4th. That's a tremendous accomplishment and it really should fill you full of optimism for the future because there are going to be times when the luck does fall your way. Yes. And at that point, all of your ability that you've honed with this practice, basically, that you've had in working your way up is going to pay off because you are going to get the breaks sooner or later, or at least you'd have to expect that you're going to get the breaks sooner or later. There's an element of luck in the big co contests at uh, NFPC as well that I don't think gets enough credit, and that is a lot of it depends on the leagues you're in versus League the draw. leagues you're chasing. Yep. You know, you said you got three top 100 guys. I'm in a in an earth league and for a while, and I still think maybe the, that I've got two guys in my league who are top 10 in oh the overall. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's and, two monstrous teams. Yeah, and they're really good players. They're all really good players. And... That's the league where I had Edwin Diaz in the second round and I had oh. Reese Hoskins in the fourth round, you know, or the 10th round, whatever it was. I lost basically, uh, I had Tristan McKenzie in that league as well. Oh so, you know, you lose and then you think to yourself, okay, I'm not going to win this league, but there's an overall and in, in the earth leagues, there's an overall, overall of the leagues. So you're mm -hmm. trying to help your league finish to near the, the top of the league. So That's right. they, it gives you lots of incentive, I think, to do well. So among the 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 drafting that you did this year and as you're following your team did you have any players that you had kind of everywhere and you're glad you did 
Yeah, I would say uh, some Cincinnati love has paid off. I was pretty big on on a lot of Reds coming into the year. Now one of them failed, and I will I will eat the Will Myers thing right away. So if you followed me on him, we we took a big. We took a big hit there. He did not pan out, but Spencer Steer was somebody I really liked. My podcast co-host, Justin Mason, really liked TJ Friedel. And we liked each other's guys, too. Uh, I was a big Jake Fraley guy. He was a big TJ Friedel. And we liked each other's. So the two outfielders, Spencer Steer, loved all three of them. I was a big Tyler Stevenson guy, too, and he was more middling. Um, he's okay for a catcher in two catcher leagues, but he, he underwhelmed versus what I wanted. I was a big Josh Young fan coming into the year feel, feel pretty good about how that turned out his teammate jonah heim now both of them had recent injuries in fact um uh young's going to be out for the rest of the year i believe with his injury and then hasung kim was a guy that i've stayed committed to since he's come over from this from korea and uh he's having a breakout major season so those are a few guys that i've had on uh, across the multiple teams spencer steer is probably the one that i have on like every team who's pan panned out beautifully for me this year as a late round pick how about on the pitching side on the pitching side, you know, I'm always uh, kind of sticking with my guys even more so than hitters, where I will go to the well for them in multiple leagues. Kyle Bradish has served me very well. I actually ended up getting Tyler Wells in, in the main event, too. So I went double Baltimore, and I know that Wells hasn't been playing. And by the way, i got to get a little excited that Spencer Torkelson just hit another home run, Patrick. I love that he's been popping off right now. Sorry for that interruption. We are recording during the uh, during the Tigers game, but he's been killing it. But yeah, Kyle Bradish is a guy I've had in a bunch of spots. And then some in-season guys that I liked before the year, but they needed to get a spot, and that would include Chase Silseth, Cole Reagans and Christopher Sanchez. We'll talk more about one of those guys later too. But I, I actually had some love for those guys before they even had roster spots. And now uh, they're looking like second half major contributors for folks too. And I have to ask anybody that you had fairly widely held that really just failed? Well, I, I mentioned Myers earlier and I, I think he'll definitely be one of them. And again, I'll stick with Cincinnati guys because while Tyler Stevenson is still viable enough to hold in two catcher leagues uh, he's been underwhelming and then another guy that I really loved and I thought if he's healthy he's great like that's kind of my thing with him and it, it's still kind of true but Eloy Jimenez has not had the big breakthrough that I thought he had like you're not losing your league because of Eloy Jimenez's 110 OPS plus but I thought he could be somebody Patrick that would help you win your league and instead he's been kind of kind of modest if your worst player is a 110 OPS plus, I think you're, you're probably pretty, pretty well. yeah, you're, you're <laughs> in pretty good shape. Yeah. Uh, at the Graph site, which is part of Fangraphs, uh, you write a daily starting pitchers chart article and the website description of your August 9th said, uh, start sit thresholds are changing more as the season wears on and your standings dictate what to do in the final two months. So how do time of year and standings affect start sit decisions? So you got to be really sharp about and, you know, doing the best you can, right? Because you can never be perfect with it to know, you know, you're always taking a risk anytime you start somebody. Anybody can get hit. But as you look at your standings with the ERA and WHIP, and I always credit Todd Zola on this because he's one of the first in the industry that I heard really hammer this home about how ERA and WHIP are given up on way too early because those two categories, like average on the hitting side, are categories where people can come back to you. Nobody loses stolen bases. Everyone's just going up, up, up. Ratios can come back, so don't give up on them. So you got to do a real honest assessment of where you are, and that might even include some math, right? I'm sorry, you know, if you were told there'd be no math. You might have to do some math. What does 
50 innings of a three ERA do for you? Figure out what that what impact that really has instead of trying to guess. And then you can decide, do you want to open your thresholds a little bit more and try to gamble with some, with some uh, riskier pitchers, maybe in cushier matchups? Or do you really need to tighten up because you got four or five teams behind you that if you take one mega dud, like a six earned run outing in two innings, that'll kill you. So you have to get in there and dig in and see where you're at to decide if you want to open your thresholds or close them based on your standings. And you're going to see a lot of that in the SP chart down the stretch where I'm going to say, I'm starting him if I'm in Hail Mary mode, or I'm sitting this guy if I'm protecting ratios type of situation. And you mentioned you have to do the math and I, I strongly believe in that. And you have to do you have to project where you think you're going to be at the end and then subtract the innings that you're getting rid of and add the innings that you're adding. And as part of that, don't forget that dropping 50 innings of a 450 ERA has a very salutary effect on your overall just as much as adding 50 innings exactly. of a 350. And if you can do both, trade a 450 or drop a 450 and add a 350 in the same amount of innings, you're compounding your gain and make sure to keep that in mind. In an article this week, you noted that Miami right-hander Braxton Garrett, he's having a pretty good season, but he has a difficult two-start week, Houston and at the Dodgers. But then you go on to say you're going to roll with him in most spots. A 535 ERA in his last seven starts, just a 19% strikeout minus walk over that span. So what do you think is the best approach in short-run decision-making like this when a pitcher's results are well out of line with underlying skills? You know, I'm somebody that, been playing long enough that I'm still going to kind of trust the larger samples more often than not. And when you're looking at somebody like Braxton Garrett and even cycling back to last year with his 17 starts, we've now seen just over 200 innings, 210 to be exact, of a 377 ERA and a 121 whip. And that's going to be kind of my guide with a guy like this. He doesn't strike out a ton, but he gets enough Ks. He doesn't walk guys. And Braxton Garrett is a really interesting lefty. And I've come to really believe in the Marlins pitching development too. So the fact is, it's not just their home park either. They know how to develop talent. And I really do think that somebody like Garrett, even though the short term has been a little sketchy and Houston Dodgers is difficult, he's somebody I'm rolling with. And the first part of that did pan out with five shutout innings against Houston. The Dodgers are very scary and they can erase a lot of good work. But Garrett's been somebody I've had a real hard time getting out of my lineup. He ate those 11 earned runs against Atlanta. Um, and even with that, back on May 3rd. He still has a 391 ERA on the season. Since that bad outing, Braxton Garrett has a 339 ERA in 96 innings since getting thrashed by Atlanta. So he just has been mostly trustworthy during the year. And I think he, Bryce Elder, uh, Braxton Garrett was getting compared to like Bryce Elder as two like finesse guys kind of getting it done in the NL East. But I didn't see them similarly. I think Garrett's a, a standard deviation better than Garrett. I think, or than Elder, excuse me. I think he's a much better pitcher and I believed in him a lot more, whereas Elder did look like a fade and he has faded hard in the second half. So I'm trusting Garrett, even in tough spots so far, so good with Houston. The Dodgers still scare me though. You mentioned the one bad outing, the 11 earned run outing that uh, really affected the Braxton Garrett line, but where do you stand on just mulligans in general? I know a lot of people disagree. It happened, right? But but it it happened, and can you discount it? Yeah, I think you can. I'm a big on game logging, right? And I know some people see it as like justifying or making excuses. I don't think it's that. I think it's understanding the makeup of an ERA because not all ERAs are created equally, right? 
Like if you've got somebody, I think this matters a lot more for like head to head, but if you've got somebody who puts up, you know, five great starts and then gets hit for five, six, seven runs and then runs out another four great starts. I want that guy more than the guy who's always kind of going five or six innings, giving up three or four runs. He's just kind of, he's just kind of there doing okay, but never really pops off. But then they equal the same ERA. Give me the guy who's better, especially in head to head, because when he's putting up the five good starts, if I get two of those in a given week, he's helping me win more. So I'm all about game logging, Patrick. I want to see where guys are coming from and how their ERAs and whips have been shaped over the course of the year. And I look at a start like that Braxton Garrett one against Atlanta, and that's a total mulligan for me because you shouldn't be starting virtually anybody against Atlanta right now except for the true aces of aces. I'm talking like your Garrett Coles, your Corbin Burns's, your Spencer Striders. Obviously, he's on Atlanta, but that caliber of player, and that's it against Atlanta right now. None of my second-tier guys, none of my mid-tier guys. It's studs only against that club. I think that's a wise approach. Now, what about on the hitting side? Because I've heard people say, and I tend to believe in this, I'm more interested in your, you know, one for five or one for four, two for five every day, something, yep. a, a stolen base here, a home run there, some RBIs, than I am with a guy who's, you know, zero home runs for two weeks and then three in one game and then another. I, I would rather have the steady production on the, on the hitting side, but I'm more interested in the game to game on the pitching side. Absolutely agree there. And, you know, you can go over a course of anybody's season, except for maybe like the MVPs or something, but in the course of a given year, every hitter is going to have a pretty big cold streak somewhere. And oftentimes even an MVP, but the bottom line is you want to try to find as many guys who don't have those wide highs and lows in hitting. And I think that's for hit head to head and Roto in Roto. You are just looking at the bottom line, right? But the reason I still want the consistency in Roto is because sometimes if they're too inconsistent, it can lead you to some rough cuts, right? Because you catch them on a Sunday when they're in the midst of their month-long low, and you're like, maybe it is time to cut this guy. And then he goes on his hot streak. Whereas the guy who's more consistent and always delivering a little something, even if he's putting up some one-for-fives and one-for-0-for-fours uh, there, but he's like walking and still scoring a run, those guys are just better. And I know Baseball HQ has consistency metrics both on the pitching and hitting side to try to help you better understand that. And I think that stuff is very valuable. So I'm always digging in game logs on both the hitting and pitching side, Patrick. There's still a question of sample size, and I For wondered sure. – when I was looking at Braxton Garrett, we were talking about, and I looked at his Fangraphs game logs for the last seven games, and boy, it's a real mixed bag. He gives up a lot of hard contact over the time, like 46% or something like that, only 7% soft contact, and you think, ouch, that's not so good. But he's hardly walking anybody. Four starts, no walks at all. 28% of the hitters are getting base hits. Uh, I, I could go on. So when you're looking at these shorter run data sets, how do you parse all of the, what looks like conflicting evidence? I try to look, you know, it, when, when, when they're getting hit, where their pitch mix changes, where their velo dips, where their spin rate drops, was their stuff off? You know, um, Eno Saris and I, he's my co-host on the sleeper in the bus. We got to interview John Smoltz way back when this was before, I think he was on the desk, but he wasn't in the booth yet. This was back in 2016. And he talked to us, he had some really great insights and I've, I've got, I've got some pushback for some of his present day insights, but back then I thought he was saying some of the sharpest stuff in the game. And he highlighted how pitchers, if you break up their 30 starts for 10 of the starts, everything's cooking. And he's talking about fifth starters all the way up to aces for 10 starts. 
everything's cooking. For 10 starts, nothing's cooking. And then the other 10 starts kind of decide your season. Are you on for seven of those, off for three of them? You're probably going to have a pretty darn good season. Are, are you five and five? Okay, you're going to be okay during the season. Are you, you know, nine extra bad ones and only one other good one? That's going to be a bad year. But the bottom line is guys are going to vacillate, even the studs. You can't overreact too much. And that's why with Braxton Garrett, I talked about leaning back on the bigger sample, even during his struggles. Go look through Braxton Garrett's log. Every time he has a really terrible start, he bounces back almost immediately. Got crushed by uh, Atlanta. Bounced back with an okay start at Arizona, but then a really good one against Cincy and San Francisco and went to Coors. Then he got beat up by Colorado at home, three innings, six runs, immediately bounced back against Detroit, Philly, and at Cincy, and then this Houston start. So I also look at that. How do guys rebound from their bad starts? Do they spiral or do they kind of turn it back around? And somebody like Garrett consistently turns it around. That's why I continue to trust him, even in the midst of a difficult schedule. On Tuesday of this week, you had Toronto right-hander Yusei Kukuchi rated fairly well up the chart at home versus Philadelphia. It's a fairly tough matchup, and the note said, home run machines always carry meltdown potential, but we can't ignore his recent excellence, including five straight homer-free games. So since June, and I looked this up, his home run per nine has been under one, with an 11% home run per fly ball rate, which is pretty good uh, after ringing up a ghastly two and a half home run per nine in the early going and a home run per fly ball over 20. So he seems to have tamed the home run monster. How confident though, can we be that he has really swatted the big fly problem? Confident enough to keep running with Yusei Kikuchi right now. Not confident enough to set it, forget it, and not even check in, right? Because obviously... Um, and, and he had another start. That Philly start ended up being homer free as well. So it's six straight homerless outings, which is awesome. Uh, and that's obviously a 0% homer to fly ball rate. You're probably not going to run that hot the rest of the year. He was at 20% uh, in the 18 starts before that, which is high, but not crazy. In fact, he's a 19% career. So it's kind of in line with, with where Kikuchi usually is. I think he's running well right now. I buy it enough to start him everywhere, even in like a 10-team mixer right now. I think Kikuchi's an everywhere start. But it's not so much that I think that the home run problem has gone away. What I do like is an 11-point slice in his fly ball rate down from 39% to 28%. I think that's a big deal right now. And that gives me confidence that these homers are at least quelled to a degree that I can trust Kikuchi in all matchups uh, right now, except for maybe the toughest of the tough, like uh, you know Atlanta or LA, if he had happened to get into some interleague play there. I think I called him a right-hander. He's a left-hander. And the outing against Philadelphia this week, we call them pure quality starts at baseballhq.com. And uh, this was a PQS four out of five. The last couple have been five out of five. There's a certain amount of momentum going on. And by reducing all these home runs, we should point out that Kikuchi has a 270-ish ERA because he spiked his strand rate up to around 83%. And Paul, under most circumstances, we'd say, whoa, 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 83% strand rate. We expect this to regress back to 70% as ERA is going to go up. But as ERA estimators have him around 350 with all of those home runs earlier built in. But he has other mitigating factors, soft and medium contact, total 65%. His BABIP is pretty normal, 21% strike on minus walk. So again, these conflicting signals. So what's your position on who the real you say Kikuchi is for the rest of the season and especially into next? 
And again, that's going to be somewhere where you're going to lean on the historical and still take it seriously. And the simple fact is the home runs didn't just start this year for Kikuchi. It's been a career-long issue. And while I do love the newfound fly ball rate being lowered, I'm not going to completely forget his persistent home run issues. So they're still going to be in the back of my mind. For example, even if he continues to run hot for the final six weeks here and put up a really nice second half that makes him you know, kind of a league winner type, I will raise him for sure. But I will not be fully certain that he has tamed this home run problem until we are able to really see, I don't know, you know, a full season worth of, of the lowered fly ball rate. So I will come in with him next year ranked higher, but still pointing out to folks he remains a home run risk until we get more than, you know, whatever it's going to end up being, 90, 100 innings worth of home run suppression. But the broad, bottom line is he's always had good velocity, good swing and miss, and this year he's added the control with it down to a career-best 7% walk rate. So I, there's always been elements for Kikuchi that people have liked, and now that he's got the homers in check, he's you're seeing why people have always been interested in Kikuchi despite the home runs because he's been that one fix away from really becoming something special. That's a really interesting point. The one fix away guys are always really interesting when they appear to have fixed the one thing. Now, when you talk about a hundred innings of reasonable home run lack of production, does that include next year? Will you look back to when it started this year and say, yes. okay, I was Particularly if the that. same things are happening, right? If the fly ball rate is continuing to be down and, you know, the pitch mix velocity and all that is looking very similar to what we've seen here during the, the beginning of this excellent run, I am going to give credence to some of the stuff that he did this year as carryover for Yusei Kikuchi. Absolutely. Speaking of conflicting signals, Minnesota starter Bailey Ober got the nod at home versus Detroit for you. Uh, you noted that in his previous five starts, he had allowed seven home runs in a couple of 11 hit games, but he still also had a 23% strikeout minus walk, which is pretty near to elite. So mm -hmm. what is the true signal for Bailey Ober? True signal is he's a right-handed Yusei Kikuchi. Constant home run issues, not as lengthy of a history or even as high of a, a home run rate, but the similar issue that gets him is home runs. Now, where he differs from Kikuchi is he's always had the strong control. And that's why Ober's been so appealing is that even with the homers, um, you know, 2021, he had a big homer issue. Last year, he curbed it a bit, but he only threw 56 innings, so we didn't know if it was real yet. And then this year, he started with the homers, but he has uh, cut them down. And 1.3 is manageable. The beauty is he doesn't walk anybody. So a lot of those homers are solo shots. Where I would get concerned was the two 11-hit games, but it looked like those were pretty pretty isolated to maybe getting nickeled and dimed a little bit by KC in Detroit. The teams that he allowed them to are pretty annoying. Although I will say KC has been rolling pretty hot lately. So give him credit where it's due, but yeah, he's a guy whose home runs are always going to kind of linger, but as long as he doesn't walk guys, I'm going to be interested in Bailey Ober. There will be bad starts when he gives up two, three homers, especially if there's anybody on, but by and large, I think he's going to be a net positive for, for folks with like a mid three ZRA, a good whip and decent win potential in Minnesota and, and good strikeouts. I should say too. He's not a huge strikeout guy, but he's right around one per inning, which is at least where I want him to be. You put Cincinnati starting pitcher Graham Ashcraft's home start versus Cleveland as the fifth best start of the day. And you, you said he's evolved into the must start. I thought he would be when hyping him as a breakout. So overall for the year, 495 ERA, 141 whip, which is not that great. What has Ashcraft done for you to make him a must start despite those decimals? 
finally gotten on track a bit. Yeah, it was a big, you know, there's a group of us that really liked him as a breakout this year and thought, uh, you know, that he could be something keeping with my Cincinnati theme, although going for their hitters makes a lot more sense than their pitchers given that park. But he was just an absolute nightmare starting in May. The funny thing about Graham Ashcraft's season is he actually started off pitching pretty well. He had a two ERA through his first six outings. But those of us that liked him, the reason that we weren't super giddy about that initially is because the skills were really wonky. He was walking too many guys. He wasn't getting strikeouts. And he really wasn't looking like the Graham Ashcraft that we had seen in spring that we thought was going to take a step forward this year. So there was some skepticism there, and it did implode to where he became a cut everywhere. Well, then he started getting back on track late June, early July, but the skills weren't there again. Too many walks, not enough Ks. And so I was like, okay, I don't know. Starting around July 24th, those last five starts, the skills have been coming up to at least a more reasonable level that we can believe in with Graham Ashcraft, which is why he's now reemerged into the must-start guy. 243 ERA, 103 whip. It's still only an 11% strikeout minus walk because he did only have two Ks against Cleveland. But if you watch the games, and I've watched three of those starts, he's looked a lot better. The start in LA against the Dodgers, six scoreless, even though he only had two Ks, was really impressive for Graham Ashcraft. So the bottom line is he's missing more bats. I wish it was still a little bit more consistent, but he's not walking as many guys and the ball's staying in the park. I think everything's there right now with Graham Ashcraft that he's a pretty trustable guy in just about every format. Tens, you're always kind of your team will vary, but uh, he has a two start next week at the Angels and at the Diamondbacks. Both two teams that have looked good overall for the year, but that are struggling recently. I'm starting Ashcraft in all formats with that two start next week. I really like that Dodger start. I'm a Reds fan, so I try to catch them as often as I can at night. And the thing about Ashcraft that worries me is what I saw out there was a, a guy that I just liked his demeanor on the mound. Mm -hmm. And the last guy I liked the, his demeanor on the mound was Alec Manoa. You know, he's strutting around out there. I did too. And that didn't work did out so too. well, you know? Yep. So how prone are you to looking at pitchers and assessing attitude demeanor, these kinds of things and allowing it to color your judgment or you stats, stats, stats. It's hard not to have any of that come in, right? I know some folks that play this game that don't watch any any games, and so they can avoid that. That bias is kind of pulled out their full stats. Now, there's other biases that will, will hurt them, right? Sometimes you do need to see things. Box scores can be misleading. So I don't think there's one way to do it. But I'm heavy on watching just as much as I am with the stats. I love the stats, right, at Fangraphs. I'm all about you know, baseball savant pages, pitcherlist.com pages, but I still got to watch too. I want to see what these guys are doing. What does the stuff look like? And you can really learn, you know, juxtaposing a good box score start versus it the mediocre outcome when you actually watch it and then vice versa too. a guy might go six innings, five runs, but had eight K's one walk. And you're like, let me look at this outing. And then you see, it was like literally three missed pitches, but the, but the opponents, you know, punished all three of them type of deal. And to me, I'm going to say that was still a pretty good start, even though the ERA was really ugly. So there is value in watching games, even if you know the results, because you can kind of learn how the pitcher works, learn some things about them. And I will judge things on demeanor and attitude too. 
uh, Patrick. It's a bias that kind of comes into our game as we watch. I don't think there's any way to, to alleviate that, right? I can't pretend that I didn't think that Manoa was a great bulldog who could work through issues and never really run into troubles like this. If you had told me that this was going to be his outcome this year, I would have said it was like a 1% chance. He just struck me as somebody who was going to have one of the highest, sturdiest floors possible. That like maybe if you had told me Alec Manoa puts up like a 480 ERA, like he struggles a bit and he just doesn't quite have his best season, I could have believed that. But like a 6 ERA and getting sent down twice, one time all the way back to rookie ball, I would have said you're crazy for that coming into the year. So the bottom line is we just never know either. We take what, we, what we've got and we do our best with it. I still believe Manoa has a pretty good attitude on the mound, but right now his skills aren't backing it up. So the best attitude can only take you so far. Yeah, you can have the cockiest dog in the world, but if he gets in the, <laughs> gets in the dog fight with the wrong other dog, then it doesn't matter. The size of the fight in the dog does matter, but not to the exclusion of everything else. You know, one way that I've found that I can follow my guys and get a good idea of how the game is going is rather than watching it on TV is listening on the radio. I love radio. Yeah, I do too. And, and, uh, I try to listen to my pitcher starts whenever I can, uh, instead of watching them, because I think you get a little bit more nuance from the, uh, announcers because they have to fill time. And so they talk about, uh, what, what kind of approach, you know, the, the, yeah, good luck, bad luck kind of things. Uh, I was listening to a game the other day and I don't remember who was playing, but if you looked at the box score, it would have sounded like he gave up 10 hits. And what he gave up was five good hits, two bleeders, and three hits that frankly, uh, both the announcers said should have been errors because they <laughs> yeah, don't call oh, errors yeah. anymore. Errors these days. Yeah, they stopped calling errors. They just don't call errors anymore. It's unbelievable. And that's that's valuable to understand like, okay, so... And again, it's not saying that those fantasy numbers don't count against you. You can't go petition your, your commissioner and say, you know, the announcer said that these shouldn't have counted, so can you take them off my record? But it's for it's for going forward, right? So you probably have a better feeling on that pitcher yeah. now, understanding that he didn't get clocked. He had a little bit of bad luck to go with a few hits of his own that he gave up. So yeah, I think the radio is so valuable, and I like to switch between both broadcasters too. I like to hear sometimes how the road guys are assessing a pitcher uh, versus the home guys, you know, kind of they have more knowledge of him, so they might be a little bit more favorable to him too. So I bounce between the two broadcasts as well. Doing yard work and listening to baseball is, is still one of my favorite things. I know that makes me 100 years old, but I don't care. I absolutely love it. Baseball on the radio is still amazing. Well, I live in a condo, so I don't have yard work, which gives me more time to listen to baseball on radio. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, Seattle right-hander Emerson Hancock had a decent enough debut against San Diego. Uh, one earned run, a couple of hits, uh, three walks, three strikeouts, five innings. That's not bad. And he gets Kansas City this week, but you rated the start only as middle of the pack. What was your level of caution with Emerson Hancock? I got to be honest, a decent bit of it was related to the fact that Casey's hitting so well lately. I mentioned that briefly uh, um, a moment ago, but I'll tell you over the last 30 days, they are fourth in weighted on base average against right-handers, uh, which is really good. This KC team is showing some spunk down the stretch here and might be a team that you're you're careful with. Again, I was still starting him in a lot of spots, but it wasn't a must start with Emerson Hancock because of how Casey's been playing well. And it was his second major league start. It's on the road. And you just, you got to be cautious with guys a little bit. So I was totally fine with anybody sitting him. He did end up getting knocked around a bit because Casey stayed hot. So it's just one of those things where um, last 30 days isn't magic. It's not like a magic number you could do last 
you know, two months, you can do last two weeks. They all have their own flaws and values, but I like to look at last 30 days along with the whole season. I know for the entire year, KC has been bad, but recently they've been good. And that's worth knowing because you might be a little less risky, especially if you go back into a situation where you're chasing ratios and you think KC is a great pick on spot. And so you're using like lower tier pitchers. If you, if you don't know that last 30 days, they've been hitting very well, you might make a mistake there. Whereas if you're aware of that info, you say, you know what? This low-tier starter against KC, no thanks. Maybe against Detroit or Oakland, but not KC until they cool down. So that's where I was with Hancock. It was more of like, if you're starting him, I understand and I can co-sign, but do not automatically put him in your lineup without even considering a sit. Just because it's Kansas City. Yeah, not because of them. And he ended up giving up five runs in five innings, I think. And one of the points about you, that you mentioned about looking at the last 30 days, especially with teams like Kansas City, is there's been a pretty big personal turnover in Kansas exactly. City from the start of the year. So when you look at a, at a team WOBA that's, you know, sub-league average, and you think to yourself, well, these guys are a soft touch, but it's not the same team now as it was then. Some of their younger players came into their own. Bobby Witt Jr. jumps into my mind. But they also replaced a few kind of dud-like journeyman-type players with some good young prospects who are doing the job. And I think you have to keep that in mind. Before we go on this topic, Paul, you've been looking at starting pitchers ever since I started uh, following this Mm -hmm. game. And inexperienced starters are really the toughest thing for me to assess. I've got a lot of them on my uh, tout roster this year, a bunch of Cleveland starters who are all rookies. I just traded one of them. But how do you calibrate your expectations when you're looking at rookies or inexperienced starters, we can call them when you're assessing the pitchers and their results. One of the things just as a general rule is to always try to be more cautious than I think the stats would normally make me because I've fallen for too many guys over the years and thought that they were unquestioned, ready to go. Don't worry because he's shown this for 90 innings. Now I've learned the rookies are going to hit a wall at some point. Right now we're seeing it with a lot of guys, even guys that aren't rookies, just younger guys in their first full season maybe. They're hitting that dog days wall. And I've just used historicals a little bit more in general to kind of tamp down my excitement with rookies just to keep myself in check. Now sometimes they are that good the whole year and they just kind of uh, are that unique guy for the year, the the unicorn rookie that doesn't have any sort of fumble to him. But I look at these Cleveland guys that you mentioned. I love what they're doing, and I trust uh, Cleveland implicitly with pitchers. Yet at the same time, I got to understand that Bybee, Gavin Williams, Logan Allen are still in their first year. They're ostensibly in a bit of a chase too, so the, the pressure's up. Everything's there. Be careful just blindly thinking that they cannot possibly fail you, right? Like, I still want to have backups. If I had three rookies, the way you said you did until you traded one, if I had three rookies like anchoring my staff right now, I would probably want to make sure that my uh, reserve roster had more pitchers than hitters just because you got to be careful. You never know when a team's just going to randomly shut down a guy. Tyler Wells got sent down to double A. Who, who saw that coming? He's pitching very well on the year. You would never have thought that, but he started to struggle. They thought it was worth tamping him down. So they sent him down to double A to kind of massage his innings. And so you always have to be prepared for things to fall apart with rookies. It can happen on a dime. And so that's really what it is. It's just that I want to have a lot more options if I'm riding two or three rookies on my team that are very important to me. And if you've got Bybee, Gavin Williams, Logan Allen, 
Uh, Hunter Brown just recently got moved to the bullpen for a little spell. Like if you're riding guys like that, you've got to have backups at the ready. You know, boring guys like Wade Miley can be so useful down the stretch because he's just going to go out and get his six innings every time out. And if you miss a Hunter Brown start because he's in the bullpen, you can slot in a Wade Miley or, or that type of guy. So always just be a little bit more skeptical of rookies than even the surface numbers might tell you if they're if they're doing very well. Tanner Bybee is one of the guys I have, and he's a guy that I shouldn't watch because I like his demeanor on the mound. He seems like a veteran, but you can't let that obscure the fact that he's not yep. a veteran. You can't treat him like one. I agree with you entirely. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs, Rotographs, and from the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And Paul, I heard you on the Sleeper in the Bust pod talking about how you've been approaching closers at drafts for the last little while and how you plan to approach them again the same way next season. What is your evolved thinking on drafting closers? Pay for saves. And I've been down on this, you know, I've been, been with, with this trend for a few years now. And listen, I know there's an alternative. You don't have to. It's, it's, a, it's a management style choice, I think. And for me, I simply don't want to be in the rat race during the season. And we've seen this year, there's been no cheese for the rats to go for, right? There's been nobody to pick up. There's been a pocket of guy here and there, but there hasn't been the normal turnover, which seems weird because you would think like with these more fractured bullpens, there's been guys to go get. There have been guys to get, but for like, a third of the saves or 40% of the saves. There haven't been guys that are taking over these teams. And so, you know, you could have wound up with like Edwin Diaz. Unfortunately, you, you, uh, you know, suffered that fate with the injury in the WBC, yeah. but that's not a draft thing. That's, that's pure bad luck. That's all that is there. And I'm, I am pretty confident that if he had stayed healthy, he would have been one of the top closers too. But you go look at the best closers this year. They're mostly the guys who were drafted early. Carlos Estevez is probably the best, you know, out of nowhere guy. And if I can pat myself on the back a little bit, he was actually one of the late closers that I did like. So I even liked one of the best late closers. Now that's more luck than anything else. I don't want to toot my own horn too heavily on that, but I pay for the haters, the class A's, and I'm going to continue to do it because I think people underestimate the fab spend about not paying for saves at the draft table. Do I want to pay the draft capital or do I want to pay my fab capital? I'd rather pay the draft capital. And if I have to, you know, if I lose one of them in season, I still end up having to pay the fab that happens too, but I'm more likely to have to be able to avoid that rat race all year with my Josh haters uh, and my Emmanuel classes. And so I'm going to continue to pay for it. It's worth it to me. And besides, as you said, it's just getting harder and harder to find those saves in the fab pool during mm -hmm. the season. Now you mentioned that you'd looked into it in a research sort of way that over the last few years, more and more of the saves have been accruing to more and more of those closers, where I think a few years ago, the complaint about drafting closers early was too many of them end up not getting saves, but it seems exactly. to have reversed in your uh, study. Because what, what, what I'm noticing is that the teams that don't have like an A guy, if that guy flops, they don't anoint the next guy is the A guy either. Again, they go to, okay, now you get 40% of the saves, Michael Fulmer. Okay, now you get 60% of the saves, Edward Alzale. By the way, maybe a bad example because he's actually kind of emerged as the guy now. But for a while, they were just kind of 
sharing the next guy and bringing in yet another guy. And that's what I've noticed with these teams that do have openings is they never really land on, a, on an A guy anyway. So it's really the teams that have the guaranteed A guys. Um, I go for them and I kind of, you know, I'll take my chances there. It can still blow up. So this is really a managerial preference more than it is my way's right, your way's wrong. I don't want that rat race during the season. I don't want to have to pick up Reynaldo Lopez three different times thinking that he's going to be the White Sox guy. And it's just not part of management that I enjoy or succeed at. So that's why I pay for saves. And you mentioned that they don't anoint a new guy as the A guy. And I think part of the reason is the new guy is not an A guy in terms of skills or experience or all of the kind of things that go into that, that calculation. And the other thing... I think more young managers are affecting the way this works that for a while, everybody was doing the closer by committee leverage situations, best guy in the seventh, if that's where you need him. And when it doesn't work, a lot of those young managers, older managers, everybody, they seem to think, I sure wish I had a Josh Hader. I sure wish I had an Edwin Diaz, you know, I bet in New York, they do wish they had Edwin Diaz because they, you end up messing around and it ends up being a shamas and nobody gets the bulk of the saves, which is what you're looking for when you're paying for that kind of uh, performance. Absolutely. One one of the things about that, that I think um, research has shown pretty well is that when Joe Madden had a button to push, he wanted to push it. The reason that he would mix and match is because no one was emerging. Like when he had Fernando Rodney, Fernando Rodney got what, like 48 saves that one year with the with the Rays? Like, um, you know, I think he had an Andrew Kittredge year where he got 20 or something. Like if, if a guy emerged, then Madden would go to it. And even Kevin Cash is the same way. If there's a guy there that they can be trusted, they will go to it. Like they want Pete Fairbanks to be the guy. His body just hasn't been able to hold up. Like he got hurt again this year. He has 15 saves. That is the team most. Uh, I think he would be like a 30, 40 save guy if he could stay healthy. And that's why I was I was actually drafting Fairbanks under that notion this year. But once again, he just couldn't stay healthy. So I, I agree with you. The teams that don't have the A guy wish they did. They're doing the closer by committee thing mostly out of necessity. But if they had that capital C closer, they would push that button nine out of 10 times. I agree entirely. And sometimes they pay for it on the free agent market, but sometimes the, the player just comes up through the ranks and ends up being an A guy like uh, Juan Duran in Minnesota. You know, he was the setup guy and then they realized, hey, not by any design, we, we ended up with an A guy and they ended up uh, adjusting accordingly. Paul, this is the time of the year when we start looking at second half, we'll call it the second half, it's actually post-All-Star break performance, sure. looking for those big improvers and big decliners. So to prepare for this, I looked at some starting pitchers whose ex-fips have improved or declined from the second half to the first half in a big way. And I'm curious what you think of the change and how you view these pitchers for 2024. And the first guy I noticed was Michael Grove of the Dodgers. His first half XFIP was about 448. Now he's down around 260. So that would seem to indicate that he's on the right track. What do you think of Michael Grove? Yeah, I think he was on the right track before he getting hurt, which was a bummer because uh, he was somebody I liked. And we talked about a couple other teams earlier that I kind of implicitly trust with pitching Miami and Cleveland. The Dodgers are right there too. Throw in Tampa Bay um, as another one. There's certain teams that if they've got a pitcher going as, as a new rookie, 
I'm interested just because he's on in that organization and I trust what they can do with pitching. So Grove was that guy and I picked him up a couple different times and it never really quite worked. And he even had like his last start before he got hurt was really bad. I think he gave up like eight runs against Cincy, but he had 10 Ks and one walk in that game. So that's another one of those games where 10 hits, eight runs, that's unquestionably bad. But 10 Ks, one walk is also really, really good. So there were good things within that start that Grove could build upon. And he really started to get his strikeouts going when he was turning around the uh, the, the XFIP there. He's somebody I'm really intrigued by for next year. Obviously, the Dodgers are going to go out and get some pitching because they don't. I think they have one pitcher for next year on the books already. Everyone else is like a free agent or whatever. So I think they're going to go out and spend some money. Otani's been rumored there. It makes a lot of sense. But they're going to have to get a few pitchers. But I think Grove is somebody who's going to be in their plans. I like him as a late pick. I think he'll be like kind of a draft champions type of gem. And those are those drafts where you draft all 50 guys at once. I think Grove will be a steal there in the early drafts. And then as the winter goes, if it's clear that he's going to have a rotation spot, I think he could end up becoming an, uh, a hyped up sleeper. Dane Dunning in Texas has a second half XFIP around 350. It's down a run from his first half. What do you think about Dane Dunning? I love Dane Dunning, Patrick, and I can't explain why he's as good as he is. Well, I can tell you part of why the XFIP has improved. He has two double-digit strikeout games, which is very rare for him. Um, 11 against the White Sox, 12 against the Giants, and one walk uh, combined in those two starts. So that's really helping that XFIP improvement, and that's not really normal for him. I don't think we should uh, believe in that as, as a new level. But even if you take that out, uh, lop off his three August games that have gone really well for him. He still had a 328 ERA coming into August, and it was with the 425 FIP because he's more of a finesse guy who just kind of gets it done. And Dane Dunning is definitely one of those guys that if you watch him, you kind of understand why it works a bit more. Like he's just pretty good. Like he's not dominant, but he's pretty good. But then when you look at the stats, you're like, man, I'm, I've been taught by the stats to be leery of this because it's a pretty modest strikeout. It's a really modest strikeout rate. It's like a good walk rate, but not elite. Um, he gives up a decent amount of hits. Home run rate is okay. And yet, Add it all up, and it's a 310 ERA in 128 innings. I don't know. Dane Dunning's one of those ones that I just I can't fully explain why he's as good as he is, but I really like him. I also play in a lot of deep leagues, folks. So keep in mind, I don't think Dane Dunning is like a 10-team god or even really a 12-team god. He's more of a, a, a reserve streamer there. But in 15 teamers where I play, guys like that at the back end of your rotation, I love glue guys like that that are just solid. With, with pretty high floors, because even if he bounces back to the 446 ERA from last year, as long as it doesn't come with another 144 FIP, that's a little untenable. But I can take a low to mid fours ERA from Dane Dunning if I'm getting a good enough whip like the 114 he's had this year. So long-winded there, I apologize, but I really like him, and I just can't explain why he's as good as he is. Sandy Alcantara in Miami has been viewed as a disappointment this season, uh, largely because of a poor first half, a 472 ERA, a 407 XFIP is not as bad, but in the second half, a 245 ERA with a 322 XFIP. What do you think of the possibility that Sandy Alcantara is quietly sneaking back towards the 2024 list of top starters? I think so much of it that let's cut this part out so you and I can draft him at a discount or reframe the question so we can negatively attack him and make it. No, I'm just kidding. But no, I'm 100% with you. Um, I do, you know, it's not going to get by people. Everyone's smart. They're going to see it. But I do think he's going to make for an interesting player that, yes, the price is going to come down. It's not going to be 
dirt cheap, right? Like Sandy Alcantara is probably going to drop what three, four rounds off of where he was. He was like a second, third rounder this year. He might be like a fifth, sixth, seventh rounder, depending on how he finishes. Uh, people aren't going to completely run away from him, but man, it it's been nice to see him turn it back around because it didn't, I couldn't make heads or tails of why he was so bad, Patrick. And so in the SP chart, I was saying like, guys, I can't really sit him. I, I'm having a hard time picking where I'm going to sit him despite these struggles here. And so I'm just kind of grinding it out with him and keeping him in my lineup. And I think people who did that, it paid dividends. I don't think anybody was cutting him even in like a 10 teamer, but I understand if people were sitting him because he was so frustrating. But thankfully since that start in Boston, when he gave up one run in seven innings, um, Sandy Alcantara has been awesome with a 259 in six uh, ERA in 63 innings. So I like where Alcantara is at. I think he's going to finish strong and keep his stock pretty high for next year, despite the er early struggles. How about a few pitchers whose ex-fips have gone backwards in the second mm -hmm. half, starting with another Miami starter. Edward Cabrera looked pretty good in the first going of the year, posted a four ex-fip in the first half. It's over six now. Uh, there's only three starts in the second half, but if Cabrera doesn't write the ship, where is he going to fit into your 2024 lists? He's not, um, is the, I mean, obviously I'll rank him, but he's not going to be somebody I'm targeting. I like the upside. The arm is really, really good, but he has like, 30 grade command on the 2080 scale, right? It, you know, 50 is like 45 or 50 is kind of average there. 30 is really bad. For example, like Dylan Cease is like a 40 grade command and we see how good he's been able to be at his best, but that, that how he's had some struggles. So if you talk 30 grade command, that's really, really bad. And I think that's where Edward Cabrera is. And he's just going to be too volatile and too inconsistent. And I talked about this earlier, bad starts can erase uh, you know, three, four starts of good work very easily. That's the Edward Cabrera experience. You get three gems and then a five, six earned run outing on it to spoil all of the good work. And until we see any sort of advancement with his command, he just is who he is, which is uh, a really, 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 really risky streamer where you can get an absolute gem or he can completely ruin your week in, in a five inning span. Another near two-run decline in XFIP belongs to the venerable Charlie Morton, uh, 390 in the first half, 580 in the second. What do you think the handwriting says on Charlie Morton's wall? Danger. Danger. Uh, he's getting old, right? And, you know, Jeff Zimmerman's done great great work on aging curves. And one of his main takeaways was basically once you get to age 35, all bets are off in terms of the decline phase. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, gradual it can just kind of happen and yes the 371 era this year has been pretty good but a 146 whip is punishing and that's been the big issue right now with charlie morton and that's a mix of both hits and walks the walk issues have always been there right his stuff is so nasty that even charlie morton has trouble reeling it in because it's just so darn good but now you mix in some hit trouble and all of a sudden the whip is through the roof and i'm nervous i don't see myself drafting a 40 year old charlie morton in any tangible way because patrick if he ends up with a sub four era for the year he's going to be given probably more credit than he deserves for the future so that's just a guy that that I'll probably let him kind of do his thing on somebody else's team. I've liked him. I've been a fan of his dating back to his days in Pittsburgh, but is not somebody that I'm going to come around on and draft next year really in any way. I don't see any way where I get on the Charlie Morton train. He's been great. He could even be okay next year, but it won't be on any of my teams. I think the end is, is coming as far as him being a firm top of the rotation, meaning like your top three or four starters in fantasy for Charlie Morton. 
And Marcus Stroman looked like a Cy Young candidate in the first half, a 296 ERA, although he had a 363 XFIP, but his second half XFIP is up over five. How much has Marcus Stroman's value changed for 2024, do you think? To be honest, even when he was rolling, it always looked like it was just some run hot. And what I mean by that is that things are working, but his core skills aren't really different. It wasn't a new level for Marcus Stroman. Everything was just going very well, right? Like the ground balls were finding the gloves. They have a good defense, by the way, with the Cubs to begin with. So quality defense plus some some good luck with a 235 BABIP. He doesn't walk, guys, but he's never been a big strikeout guy. So you mentioned the 364 XFIP during that run. That was always telling us, hey, Marcus Stroman is still the guy that he is. And yeah, he had a little bit of like extra regression with those last three starts before he went on the IL. Sometimes the baseball gods just make up for lost time and it doesn't necessarily make sense, but they're like, no, 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 give back all of those good outings that you had here with these three terrible starts. And the hip inflammation might've sprung up before that and caused a little bit of that extra negativity there. But the bottom line is Marcus Stroman's still the guy that he is, right? around like 140 inning type guy that you bet on for a high three ZRA and a good whip. And now if the Cubs continue to be good uh, as they have been in the second half, and I think they can be next year, then he'll be um, a decent win potential guy too. So that, that will help uh, Stroman's value. Cause in the previous two years, we haven't really seen him as somebody that's going to get good wins because the Cubs were bad in 2022 and we didn't have big expectations for them in 2023. So he was kind of a sneaky wins guy this year with 10, but Marcus Stroman is still the same guy that we've always thought he is a solid mid rotation guy in all formats. Well, Paul, this has been really interesting so far. Let's take a break. I got to go do some news with Ray Murphy and then we'll come back in a minute and finish our discussion. Sounds great. Paul Sporer writes for Fangraphs and co-hosts the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. He'll be back later to talk about some second-half hitters, his holds or folds on some struggling starting pitchers, and some rest-of-season boons and banes. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show and I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In roster analysis coverage, Greg Jewett's Lineups Outlook column looks at the offensive surge going on in Kansas City, keyed by batting order changes affecting Michael Garcia, Bobby Witt, and MJ Melendez. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Brian Rudd's coverage of the American League Central discusses the return of Cal Quantrill to Cleveland's rotation and Gregory Santos's takeover of the closer job in Chicago. And Sarah Sanchez's Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the National League East looks at a possible catcher adjustment in Atlanta and the emergence of center fielder Johan Rojas in Philadelphia. Comprehensive roster analysis is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly player analysis, and here with the latest is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday as always, Petey. Happy Friday to you, and a happy Friday on Tuesday for, for Minnesota infielder Royce Lewis. The third baseman was activated from a rehab assignment. I think he hit a home run in his first at-bat on that assignment. Uh, he went on the IL, of course, in July, had an oblique issue, the latest in a long history of injuries. Brian Rudd covers the American League Central for playing time tomorrow, our roster forecasting columns. Uh, what is Brian suggesting we should expect when Royce Lewis is back in the saddle? Yeah, boy, it's really been... 
fits and starts for Royce Lewis in his career, hasn't it been? Uh, he had seemingly claimed the third base job in Minnesota. He had hit 326 with, uh, you know, I'm doing the quick math here, 850 OPS or something um, over about 99 plate appearances before this most recent injury. And if you, if we remember correctly, that's pretty much what happened last year too. Sometime around roughly the same time of year, they called him up. He was scalding hot for a couple of weeks and then got hurt. So we've seen him do this, hit the ground running for a couple of weeks trick a couple of times now. Um, but the trick is to stay in the lineup for more than a couple of weeks at a time. And we'll have to see if he can actually achieve that this time. For sure, he's got a clear path to playing time for as long as he can stay healthy again. They'll give him back the third base job because most recently while he was out, it had been Kyle Farmer or Willie Castro filling in at the hot corner. And neither one of those is, uh, shall we say, Brooks Robinson. Uh, so, you know, the door is open for Lewis. Castro has, to be fair, I don't mean to bust on Castro. He's been a fantasy godsend with 29 stolen bases from his ADP, which um, I think starts with the infinity sign, if I'm not mistaken, um, this year. You know, he's been, uh, you know, just a deep, deep hidden source of stolen bases. It uh, doesn't provide much else, and he's probably better used from the Twins' perspective in a utility role, which is where he can fall back to now that Lewis is up. Of course, that doesn't happen right away either because Castro himself going on the 10-day IL with a, a quote-unquote mild left oblique strain was the, was the corresponding move to activate Lewis. So Castro's out for a little while, and that means even more room for Lewis to take over at third base, as we said. Um, and Farmer probably falls back into the utility role with Lewis at third base and Castro on the IL, at least until Castro comes back. And then they have to make a decision about who the, who the utility guy is going to be there. Uh, but, you know, running room for Royce Lewis. And if he stays healthy, he get, he'll be in there every day. If he needs a day off or if he gets dinged up again, then I guess it's Kyle Farmer because Castro's out. So, all, all doors are open for Royce Lewis. Let's see what he does. And I think you're right that when uh, Castro returns, I think he's going to bring a lot more to the table in that utility role than Farmer will. So if you're even for any reason interested in fabbing Farmer, you might want to think twice about that. I don't think the plate appearances are going to be there in the short run or the long. In Texas, the Rangers are staggering a little after running a lot of the season, looking like a really genuine top contender, and their playoff aspirations took another kick in the pants this week when the team had to put breakout star third baseman Josh Young on the IL. He's got a broken thumb, probably out for the year first. Who picks up the slack at third base in Texas? Yeah, they're saying he's you know, with six weeks or something like that, which, you know, conveniently lines up with the end of the regular season, at least, as you say, the Rangers have playoff aspirations. So we'll see if uh, Young can sneak back into the lineup um, late in September to get ready for October or anything like that. But between now and then, it's going to be utility man Ezekiel Duran has slid over to third base. Uh, John O'Mellis has been promoted from AAA and now takes over you know, one of the bench roles there. Um, we had expected Robbie Grossman would be one of the guys who picked up playing time from um, in the cascade here since Durant had been playing a little bit of outfield as well. But uh, that's kind of not what happened. Yeah, it was all pretty seamless up until the point that Jock says another call-up has tossed a wrench into the gears. Yes, it's outfielder J.P. Martinez who got the initial call-up when 
uh, when Young went on the IL, and it was really expected to be just a, a weekend appearance uh, in the range, uh, on the Rangers bench last weekend before they made another move um, while Travis Jankowski was on the paternity list. Uh, but, you know, Martinez came up and kind of kicked the door down and said, I belong here. Uh, you know, he, as a reminder, he's not a, uh, you know, he's not a young prospect. He's more of a 27-year-old Cuban Bull Durham guy at this point. Uh, he had been raking in AAA with a 993 OPS, 12 home runs, and get this 33 stolen bases and 308 plate appearances. Um, and notably, the gro- the production this year had been backstopped by him really cutting his strikeout rate down to a manageable 24% and a 24% strikeout rate combined with a 17% walk rate, you know, really suggests some, uh, some nice plate discipline underpinning that, uh, that production he was showing in the minors. So anyway, he came up last weekend with that minor league pedigree um, and hit, Uh, he started, he's now started five straight games in the outfield. He's seven for 18, two walks, three strikeouts. Uh, The one night he didn't start, he got a pinch hit single. Uh, And now, you know, it looks like it's going to be hard to send him down. Uh, so the playtime loser, well, there are a couple of losers here. Uh, I mentioned John Amellis earlier. He was the one who ended up getting sent down instead of Martinez when Jankowski came back off paternity. And now we mentioned earlier that Robbie Grossman looked like he was going to be the cascading playing time beneficiary while Duran got anchored at third base instead of the utility role. But now that looks like it's Martinez instead of Grossman. So Martinez's stock is up. Grossman's stock is down. Omelis is down. And let me do this off the top of my head. Is that round rock? Um, and, and Duran's at third base. And here we are. And with almost 40 stolen bases combined this year, Martinez could get some pinch running in late defense reps. So he, he has multiple pathways to playing time. So if, JP Martinez is available on your free agent list. Take a take a flyer. At least take a long look, depending on the format of your league. He could play, and if he plays, he could run, and he's got a little bit of pop as well. Let's move over to the pitchers in Detroit. Closer Alex Lang hasn't been stupendous pretty much all season. A 3.83 ERA, a 1.38 WHIP, and lately he's been coming into games in very low leverage situations. He's given up 10 walks in four and a third innings over that short time. So into the scene rides right-hander Bo Brisky, who nobody has ever heard of. He has the last two saves for Detroit. And Corbin Young looked at Brisky in this week's Facts and Flukes American League coverage. And Doug Dennis reviewed the Tigers' pen in his bullpen buyer's guide column. So is Bo Brisky the Tigers' closer du jour? I, it kind of feels like we've been trying to shoehorn mediocre, skilled Tigers relievers into the closer role for, I don't know what, like four or five years now. <laughs> you know, there was Gregory Soto and Michael Fulmer, and you know, now we've got another cast of names. But the, the mediocrity of the skills, I think, kind of is the constant here. It's um, in, in Briefy's case now um, – as you mentioned, he picked up you know, a couple of saves. The first one the other night was quite a doozy. Um, oh, this was, I'm sorry. It, it was, um, it was Lang who came in and got, uh, had came in first uh, with the Tigers leading the Rays by two and walked two batters, then got a double play, but then walked another guy. So now two outs in tying and lead run, uh, the tying runs on base, right? So that's when they walked, when they turned over to Brisky, who struck out Isaac Paredes to get, a one-out save, so, you know, 
small sample size, but also very high leverage and he got the job done. So that's interesting. And then after that, he got he picked up another save, but that was of the two inning variety. So we haven't really seen, even though he's got two saves, we haven't really seen a very traditional vote of confidence from AJ Hinch in the, okay, it's the ninth inning and we have a one or two run lead. Here's the ball, right? Um, one was a you know desperation situation when Lang clearly didn't have it. And the other one was a, was a two run, a, a two inning job. So what do we read into that? I think we need, I think we need more data. Um, but as far as what Corbin had to say, what Corbin Young had to say about the, uh, the skills in his analysis here, he pointed out that Brisky has been lucky, but also you have to take the skills with a little bit of a grain of salt or a work in progress because Brisky was a starter last year and his transition to a reliever this year, which of course leads to all kinds of changes to pitch mix and, you know, usually shortening the arsenal, that sort of thing. Um, so in this case, Brisky has in fact cut down on the walks and the and the, his ball rate, which is good. He's you know if you want to survive as a reliever in the majors, kind of kind of throwing strikes is job one. Um, but the interesting thing that Corbin pointed out is the strikeouts aren't there, but a lot of the underlying metrics that should support strikeouts are there. Um, the velocity's up, which we often see in a reliever. He's up nearly three miles an hour in his velocity. The swing strike rate is also up too, which seems to be mostly, if you go into the pitch type data, um, his changeup is generating more swing strikes. Um, and his sinker, which isn't really designed to be a swing and miss pitch, has also has a pretty decent swing strike rate, but gets ground balls and bunches, which is, of course, what you want. He gets 73% ground balls on the sinker. So if he's got three more miles an hour on his fastball and is getting swings and misses on the changeup and can throw the sinker to get ground balls whenever he needs to. I mean, that sounds like somebody who should be a reasonably effective reliever. Well, Dan Quisenberry didn't strike anybody out back in the day. Kent Tocovi, guys like that, 75% ground ball rates. It works. I mean, it's been shown to work in the big leagues. That was 25 years ago or whatever it is. So I know that they much prefer a guy who's, uh, you know, in a role as Chapman in his prime where he's striking out two out of every three hitters. Yeah, so, I was going to go with 2005 Eric Gagne, but you know, your <laughs> yours works too, sure. Sure. But, and meanwhile, is there anybody else in the running for what few saves are going to be generated in Detroit? Yeah, there are other options here. It's not like, you know, like we said, it's not like Brisky is, you know, clearly at the top of the pecking order, even though he's picked up a couple of saves lately. There's also Jason Foley, who's another righty who had a save chance over the past week um, while they still try to figure out what to do with uh, the struggling Alex Lang. Foley's also not a big dominance guy. He's got a 22% strikeout rate, which, you know, is pretty pedestrian for a reliever. And a 16% came on his BB, which doesn't, really excite us either. Um, Lang and uh, Tyler Holton was the other name mentioned by Doug Dennis in his bullpens column. Um, Lang and Holton are um, at the top of the uh, or the only ones, the only guys who are getting decent usage by leverage index, which of course measures like the importance of the game situation when you enter. Uh, so those are guys that, you know, Hinch has been turning to with some regularity. Um, Holt, but Holton and Foley are the only two guys who are racking up clean appearances at a decent rate. So, you know, in, in theory, clean appearances should be sort of a trailing indicator of leverage index as you're racking up cleaner. Clean, clean appearances, hints should be turning to you more often. Um, 
The other guy here who's seems like he's been around forever, but I feel like he's only like 32 or so is Jose Cisnero, who had a great month, the 42% strikeout rate uh, against a 5% walk rate, which, you know, the, the math tells you was a 37% K minus BB, which will play in any bullpen, uh, even if it's only for a month. So there are options here. Like we said, it's not Brisky's job to lose by any means. You know, Holton, Cisnero, Foley are all, you know, other levers that Hinch can pull. And I think he'll probably be pulling all of them for the short term and not settling on one option for the closer or one you know distinct pattern of how he navigates the late innings so the long and the short of it ray it doesn't sound like any of these pitchers is worth much of a bet but if you're like me in one of my leagues if i got two extra saves this week i'm going to gain three or four points because the category is just that tight in my little clump so is there any way we can figure out to get two or three saves out of this bunch of guys between now and the end of the year, or is it just too fluid to say? I mean, if I were in your shoes this weekend, I'd probably be throwing a couple of bucks at Brisky, but I would be, you know, and then crossing my fingers, but I would be willing to pivot to one of these other guys or another bullpen in a week or two if it turns out that your your shot at Brisky was not aligned with how Hinch was playing it out. He's probably, uh, you know, he'd probably be the top of my my rankings in this bullpen, but I, you know, I, I would put all of them collectively at under 50% likelihood, right? It's, you know, 30% brisky and 20% Foley and 15% Cisneros, you know, something like that, right? It's not, you know, there, there's not a three and four chance that brisky gets seven saves the rest of the year or whatever we would, we would expect in the amount of time we have left. And the worry is those low strikeout pitchers, relievers, or starters are always at more risk of, of blowing up your ratios. Yeah, you, there's, there's downside for sure, absolutely. In Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column, he looks at the 20% chances of things. He's speculating. It's your old job. And, and this week he reviewed the top rookies coming into the game this season and how they've been doing. And one of the rookies he covered was Baltimore right-hander Grayson Rodriguez. An interesting story. Yeah, this was a really enjoyable column. Um, he's going to have Ryan's going to have a follow up this past week. Uh, the the number that jumped out to me off the top is, you know, how pervasive the promotions have been this year. I think it was what was it, PD? You saw it too. Was it seven of the top nine prospects on our preseason top one hundred list have made it to the majors now? And that preseason top one hundred list is not the top one hundred prospects for this year. It's just the top hundred prospects period you know, in yeah. the game on on any kind of time horizon. And we've seen seven of the top nine get called up. Uh, so basically Ryan wanted this article to be about the guys in the top 100 who have been called up and he had to break it into two parts. And the first part here this week was just covering the guys from the top 25 because he got a whole article out of them and he's going to circle back next week and hit the rest of the group. So um, you mentioned Rodriguez though. Um, and you know, it's been sort of a roller coaster for Rodriguez. He started the season in the majors and, was, you know, there's no other way to put it. It was a disaster. 26 earned runs over five starts, um, you know, and then sent back to AAA by May and probably dropped by a lot of people because, you know, you can't commit a roster spot to someone who gets sent down like that, especially when they're sent down for performance. You know, we'll talk about, um, you know, in a minute or two, we'll probably get to 
Yuri Perez, who was mentioned in the same column. Um, it wasn't a case where you know Perez got sent down for innings management and he had been great. So you're like, well, I pro- I'll probably carry Perez for a couple of weeks and hope he comes back quickly because at least he's shown he's been he could be good in the majors. But why would you hang on to Rodriguez when he got sent down because you didn't know how long it was going to take him to get fixed and you didn't know whether when he came back up he'd be. I mean, he had to be somewhat better, but you didn't think you were necessarily going to get what the prospect pedigree promised. However, Rodriguez came, did come back just after the All-Star break. So he got, you know, the better part of two months in the minors and really did get himself straightened out in the minors in a lot of ways. Um, and not only that, but the it's notable that the O's called him up to face a gauntlet of the schedule. His five starts back have been the Dodgers, Rays, Yankees, Jays and Astros, and he's banged out a 3.45 ERA, a sub one WHIP, 22% strikeout rate, 8% walk rate. You know, samples are what they are, but I think we can say that over these five starts, this is not the same Grayson Rodriguez we saw in the first five starts, right? Yeah, it is, and I know that Ryan pointed out one of the big differences is that Rodriguez is getting deeper into games. Yeah, it's huge, and he couldn't get into. Deep into games early on, not only because he was getting hit hard and giving up a ton of runs, but because his control just wasn't there. The walks were all over the place. So, you know, the 8% walk rate since his call up is you know, pretty average. Um, it's certainly not a strength, but it's, it's tolerable. So, in his first call up, he only got to the sixth inning once. Um, but in the six starts since the All Star break, he's made it into the sixth four times, the seventh twice. And then in his last start, he threw seven full innings. So, you know, even if the walks are a little bit of a problem, he's at least around the strike zone enough to keep the pitch count reasonable enough that he can get deep into the game. Um, he's been a little victimized by the luck factors. His home run per fly is 15%, which is a little too high. 37% hit rate. That's a big part of what got him sent to the minors the first time around. Um, now the luck has been in his favor in these last few starts. He's barely given up any home runs, two, 2.5% home run per fly, 24% hit rate. So some of that is just the expected correction from when he got tattooed in May. But um, overall, you know, Stephen Nickran looked at him as well in the starting pitcher's buyer's guide and pointed out that, uh, you know, in tw- 22 career starts in AAA, not just this year, but going back to last year well, as well, he's got a, Rodriguez had a 34% strikeout rate. So, even in his good run over the last six starts, he's only been 22% in the majors. So he's still figuring things out. There's still room for growth. And I think there's still, um, you know, I, I think he's just getting back to the prospect pedigree that he had this preseason. And on a team like Baltimore, Ray, getting deeper into games is a real plus because it gives that great offense a chance to score you some runs, which might put you in more often in a position to win the, get the, get the win decision in the game. And second, it gets you closer to that awesome bullpen where, you know, if you get to the seventh, that's just leaves the eighth and the ninth. And then you're talking about Cano and talking about the mountain and all of a sudden it, you got, you look really good for wins down the stretch. So when you look at Grayson Rodriguez, how aggressive are you thinking about him for the balance of this year? And then what do you think about him as a starting pitcher next year? Where do you, where do you think he's going to be appropriately ranked? Yeah, they're, they're good questions, and, and you're absolutely right. Like you know, if you're if you're 
Rodriguez, you know, he may never pitch more than seven innings because you don't want him to. You want him to give the ball to Cano and Batista. At that point, your job is done. <laughs> go, go sit down, kid. We've got it from here, right? Um, you know, that should be the, the upper bound of what he does. Um, so, you know, I think it's really encouraging for the balance of this season that um, he's made as much progress as he has. I, I'm, I'd be a little bit worried about the luck factors that are, you know, helping this current run of success. But, you know, given that gauntlet of teams he faced, you know, he's not going to face contenders every start the rest of the way. So, and, you know, the Baltimore team context is good. Like we said, he's got that bullpen behind him. He's got the, you know, let's not forget Camden Yards has also become a, you know, very heavily, heavily tilted pitcher's park since they moved the, the left field fence back last year too. So there's a lot of good environmental stuff behind Rodriguez once he started to throw strikes, which he has. So that's great. And extending to your question about next year, a lot of that stuff carries over, right? Cano and Batista should still be there. The ballpark is still going to be favorable. You know, this young offense around him is a great, you know, is, is a great asset for him too. It's a, so it's a, it's a terrific contextual environment. And if there's any room left for growth in his skills and what we're saying based on his AAA stats is that there is, you know, I, I think he gets – really compelling for next year um I, I one of the things i'll want to watch closely though is does he stay healthy the rest of this year does he get the innings total that they were projecting for him this year so that he's ramped up to basically be a you know 30 plus start guy next year or is there another year of innings management ahead of him? i think that's probably my biggest open question for him as far as 2024 value so what do you think of looking at him as an SP4 type of guy, a low SP3, high SP4? Maybe a little better than that. I could draw, uh, you know, I'm trying to draw a comparison in my head real quick, but, you know, with the strikeout rate, et cetera, you know, maybe more like where Hunter Green was this preseason, you know, with, um, you know, Green had a little more experience coming into this year, I think, than Rodriguez will next year. But Green was a, uh, if not SP2, then, then, then certainly an SP3. SP3 sounds about right to me. Okay, let's go over to the National League, and we'll start with the hitters. Speaking of categories where one or two can make a difference, we talked earlier about saves. In a couple of my leagues, if I could pick up five stolen bases, I might get seven or eight points because the stolen bases, being more numerous in general, have also seemed to compress the uh, the numbers after you get, there's always one guy in the league who's got 150 and the next guy's got 110 and then everybody else has 90 to 80, 80, you know, kind of thing. So stolen bases are really important and there's an interesting rotisserie gaming strategy column coming out soon. It's not on the site yet, but I saw it on the work list. Analyst Matt Dodge is looking into speeding into September, he's calling the column, and the strategy of stolen bases. It is an interesting and timely column, Ray. Matt pitched sort of a series on checking in on how the stolen base environment was evolving over the course of this season. And Brent and I quickly signed up for it because it, it, it was a great idea. And the article is, by the way, on, live on the site today. So it's available to everybody here as of Friday, um, subscribers at least, I should say. Um, but yeah, really good take from Matt. And you're right, the, 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 the dynamic of the stolen base category is totally different than I think you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think I'm still getting calibrated to that myself. And, you know, even things like I was looking at live scoring for one of my teams earlier this week, and I had like a five stolen base night. I'm like, 
well, you know, five stolen bases was a pretty good week not too long ago, right? And now we're, if you could pop off five stolen bases a night, then you're absolutely right that, you know, the fluidity within the category, you know, just changes that you can make up a 10 stolen base difference. Or if your speedster gets hurt, you can, you know, be caught from behind with, uh, with advantages or disadvantages that you thought last year or in prior years you might have thought that that's, that category was kind of cast in concrete, and it's just not anymore. Before we go on, the last time I saw Matt Dodge in person was at First Pitch Arizona last year, and on the way out the door, I, I said uh, goodbye to Matt because I was headed for the airport, and he said, I'm done with, you know, this is the last time you'll see me. I'm giving up the fantasy baseball and, and, and analysis business. I'm giving up uh, going on uh, this kind of retirement kind of bent. And uh, since then, this is not the first time I've seen Matt Dodge at Baseball HQ still doing work. So uh, it's like, uh, was it Michael Corleone? I tried to get out, but they keep pulling me back. Uh, wh- what's going on with Matt? I'm glad to have him Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think maybe he's hoping that he'll keep pitching these ideas to us and we'll be... And we'll finally say, no, you're retired, go away. But we're not going to do that because A, we love Matt and B, the ideas are great. Every time he comes up with one, we're like, yes, please go do that. You know, so, but you know, the, the, this was a nice one. And like I said, he pitched it, um, you know, I think he pitched it to us back in late March so like to, to do the idea of, you know, three or four check-ins during the course of the season based on how the SB trends were going. And, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I, I think having, um, you know, a, a few articles a year in the hopper and, you know, focusing on a topic for him works better than having a weekly beat that he's, that, that he had for us for a number of years. So we'll call it more of a semi-retirement. Is he coming to first pitch Arizona? Do you know? Um, I don't know for sure. He runs the registration table like nobody else in the business. I'll tell he you He totally that. does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he just doesn't want to run the registration table. Maybe he wants to just sit in the audience and have the, and be retired that way, which would be totally fine. Yeah. But you're right. He is, uh, he is a wizard at the registration table. And just a great guy as well. Uh, he looked at stolen base opportunity rates in this column and success rates. And uh, before we get to individual players, Ray, on the big picture level, what did he, what did he find out? Yeah, so uh, he found that both leagues, there's not a lot of difference between the AL and NL. Both are running at about a 9% stolen base opportunity percentage, which is basically how often a runner tries to steal divided by overall times at first base. Um, success rates are actually up another tick. I think they were at 80 or 81% earlier in the, in the season. Now they're at 82. Um, so if you start projecting current rates out over the rest of the season, assuming that the there's not another sea change in how um, teams are using the stolen base. The AL is going to come in just a jet, maybe just short of 1,700 stolen bases, which would be the most since 1992, the sixth most since 1900. The NL will be at about 1,750, which will be the most since 1999 and 11th highest ever. So, I mean, that's really significant, especially given, you know, how little a part of the game this was, you know, last year or the year before. It's, uh, you know, just flipped it on its head. You mentioned that the American League boosted its success rate to 82% in the third quarter. That was up from 78. What else did Matt's article have to say on the macro level? Yeah, and so, you know, the other, the other aspect that he correctly dove into, because this is kind of the part I wanted to see, was there's obviously team context involved, right? It's not, you know, those attempt rates in particular are not, constant among teams so you know if you're looking like you said to move the needle in your category you know finding teams that run and targeting 
players on those teams is, is an excellent strategy. Um, in the AL, he found he, he found that the Orioles, the Guardians, the White Sox, the Royals, and the Yankees are the big stolen base gainers. And in the NL, um, while it was mostly flat in, over the last quarter, the Cubs and the Cardinals were the teams that have really ramped it up over the last couple of months. And then that's in terms of of who's running more opportunities. And then in terms of success, um, the Guardians, the Royals, the Cubs, the Nats, all were running more and having more success, which, you know, to tell, sort of starts to tell you that they figured out the, uh, you know, the, the, the who should run, the when they should run, all that sort of stuff. The Cardinals were more selective, ran a little less, but up their success rate. So they're figuring something out too. Maybe they just had to give a couple of people the red light and um, the overall, uh, their success jumped quite a bit, actually. They're up to 86% in the third quarter after just 63% in the second quarter. So a couple of selective red lights probably uh, boosted that number. Um, then the last category, the Rays, the Jays, the Marlins, the Mets, the Pirates saw their success rates go down and you know, maybe chicken or egg, but then they also have, have stopped running as much. So, um, and, you know, then you get into that. The other aspect of that too, is when you see the Mets on a list like that, uh, you start to think about, you know, the change in the roster since the trade deadline too. So, you know, sometimes some of these teams don't necessarily have the same personnel they had in the beginning of the year. So that's, that, that, that's a factor as well. On the other hand, some of these teams might be bringing up young players whose calling card is speed because it's it's easier to establish a calling card of speed in the minors than it is to actually hit. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch this down the stretch. But I noticed that Matt uh, discussed a few individual players. Uh, anybody uh, that we should note? Yeah, so we mentioned the Nationals in that sort of double whammy of goodness, uh, running more and having more success. Uh, two players leading, leading the charge there. Wayne Thomas went seven for eight in, in this uh, the span of this study in sort of the third quarter of the season, running 34% of his opportunities, which is a big number. Um, but he was dwarfed by C.J. Abrams, who went 15 for 16 with a 94% sex success rate on a 50% stolen base opportunity rate, which is just huge. Um, I, I actually love this story because, you know, I happen to, you know, this is anecdotal, but I happen to observe it. You might remember... Um, right before the all-star break it might even have been fourth of july weekend um was right after ellie de la cruz came up and the reds were playing the nats and uh there was that whole episode first of all both teams were running like the wind all weekend and ellie hit a home run and then he got brushed back and dave martinez had something to say about it after the game all that stuff um but <laughs> to me cj abram is really the story of that weekend because that was really the turning point where Abrams started running. And I have this mental image in my head of Abrams sitting in the dugout, watching Ellie De La Cruz just go bananas all weekend to do Ellie De La Cruz things. And either CJ is sitting there by himself in the dugout saying, hey, you know, that looks like fun. I could do that. Or maybe Dave Martinez walks by him and is like, can you be that guy for us? Because since then, CJ has been absolutely bananas. And it's like he crossed paths with Ellie De La Cruz and like it, it rubbed off on him or something. I just find it hilarious. That was the weekend that De La Cruz stole first, second, or stole, can't steal first, stole second, third, and home uh, in the same inning, like pr- on, on, on two three plays. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We're projecting Abrams for 10 more bags the rest of the way, but if he keeps tearing up the base paths at that third quarter clip, he could eclipse 50. And 
if he does that, he's got 11 home runs, about 100 runs plus RBIs, batting 250-ish. He's at $22 five by five value now, mostly on the stolen base. I presume if he gets to 40 and all the other stuff stays on pace, he'll finish at around $22. But how much more value does he create if he gets to 50? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting skill profile. And you know, I think this is something we'll ruminate on at the end of the season or as we start thinking about how we draft and build rosters in this high stolen base era. But one of the things that occurs to me is you think about, you know, it's been a strategy in past years in a heavy, in a light stolen base environment to try to make sure you chunk up stolen bases at a, at a position. Like you want to get power, but you want to make sure you're targeting guys who steal like five or 10 bases at a time as well, right? And build, because you can build a stolen base foundation by doing that. It might be that we flip the thing on its head next year and, when trying to sort out 30, 40, 50 stolen base guys, because we have piles of them now, that the ones you want to target are the ones who don't give you the zero in home runs, but will give you double-digit home runs to go along with the gobs of stolen bases. And Abrams is you know, very much, it seems like, establishing himself as a guy who can do that, not to mention that he's super young. There's a lot, you know, the Nats have no reason not to be committed to him. They've now moved him up to the leadoff spot most of the day, so the uh, you know the counting stats should continue to be there. The you know the contextual stuff, the the runs and RBIs. Um, Abrams is probably going to be very interesting for next year. Yeah. If you were sitting in a draft next year and you had Abrams and say Xander Bogarts looking at you, which way do you think you'd be going? Yeah, you know, again, it's probably going to be. You know, Bogarts is a very different shortstop, right? Because um, because of the lack of stolen bases and the, that being a position where you usually try to get them. But maybe that matters less next year. Maybe you can more easily fit in a Bogarts because there are more different paths to surround Bogarts with stolen with, with stolen base guys at different positions. You know, one you know just to go back to my anecdote, I think one fascinating comp is going to be at uh, draft tables is. Um, Abrams versus Ellie, um, who we're going to go to, I think we're going to get back to him in a minute, right? Yeah. I was, we were looking at stolen bases and next year's shortstops and Ryan Bloomfield's review of top rookies also looked at Ellie De La Cruz, a Cincinnati shortstop and third baseman. Of course, we all remember the frenzy when Ellie got the call up and how he really hit the ground running 16 for 18 from early June through the all-star break. But since the all-star break, Ray, not so much three for six. A 190 batting average. What was Ryan's analysis when he took the uh, review of Ellie De La Cruz as a prospect? Yeah, I guess you know, maybe we need to not overreact to this because players making adjustments and counter adjustments when they come up to the majors is a huge part of the acclimation process. But you know, Ryan sees enough warts in this skill set as penalizing it is as it is that Ryan called it tr- a tricky outlook, which I think is probably a pretty good characterization. You know, there's, the, the stats are gaudy, especially early on. The skills are just eye-popping between the speed, the power, the arm, all that stuff. But, you know, there are pretty significant warts on this skill set, too. You know, the, the plate skills, a walk rate of 6% versus a contact rate of 63. That's just a ton of swing and miss. Um, the raw, his power, you know, we've seen the tape measure home runs, but... Um, the power, the underlying power skills aren't 
quite measuring up either right now. He's got a 134 power index versus expected power index of only 82, which I think tells us that the hard hit balls are not getting in the air sufficiently. Um, that's usually what a low XPX tells us. Um, and, and sure enough, in in Elliott's case, it's a 51% ground ball rate. Those, you know, I don't care how hard how hard you hit those ground balls, they very rarely they very rarely clear the fence, right? Um, so, you know, in Ryan's rookie rankings, De La Cruz, you know, is still, you know, in the non-Corbin Carroll division. Ellie still is, you know, as good as as anyone. But the strikeouts and the grounders, um, you know, are enough reason to tap the brakes a little bit. And then getting back to your original question, you know, with Ellie for all of the gaudy stat, you know, gaudy skills and all of the hype around him is going to be a second or third round pick next year, then if Abrams is a couple of is around or a couple of rounds behind that, I don't know off the, just, just off the cuff right now, I might uh, wait a little bit and take Abrams, take Abrams a little bit later over the earlier Ellie. If that's uh if that's what a hypothetical draft board looks like. Oh, for sure. I, if, if it's Ellie in the second or Abrams in the fourth, I'm taking Abrams a hundred times out of a hundred. It just, he's got more experience. He certainly seems to have better plate discipline and those kinds of skills. And he might outsteal Ellie De La Cruz because he gets on base more often. You can't steal first, as I said. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, then, you know, if some, we'll see what, we'll see where the market falls down, but if the, um, you know, maybe they'll be much closer in value and it'll be more of a, you know, which one do you like in the, late second, early third or something like that. That'll, that'll get to be a fascinating discussion, but uh, you know, there's a ton to like about Abrams. Over to the pitching side, Cubs right-hander Marcus Stroman hasn't pitched since July 31st because of what was initially called right hip inflammation. We thought he'd be back this week, but now the team has announced that Stroman is going to be out indefinitely. Not a word you want to hear if you've got a pitcher on your fantasy roster. He apparently has cartilage fracture in his right rib, and I've never had that, and I've actually never heard of it, but it sounds painful because I have had rib injuries, and they really are difficult for anything that you're doing in sports. You covered this news item for playing time today, Ray. What's the latest on Marcus Stroman and the Cubs rotation? Yeah, I learned a lot here. Uh, I didn't know you could fracture cartilage for starters. So, um, you know, <laughs> again, I didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess what happened was Stroman was throwing a bullpen last weekend, getting ready to, you know, I theoretically clear one of his last hurdles before getting activated again and felt some discomfort in the rib cage, went for an MRI, and they found this cartilage fracture. Um, so they asked David Ross, okay, so who's going to pitch in Stroman's spot? And he said probably the recently demoted to the bullpen, Drew Smiley, um, gets the tap here. Um, and he had been demoted because he had allowed 13 home run, 13 earned runs, I should say, uh, in his last 11 innings over three starts. Um, and even the three starts before that were just as bad. He's been on a, you know, earned run and inning pace for, you know, going on five or six starts now. So uh, rough times for Drew Smiley, but the, you know, he was still the top of mind answer when they asked David Ross what he was going to do about Stroman's spot. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, what about Hayden Wisniewski? For a while, he was uh, every tout's darling early in the season. Yeah, he was a popular sleeper pick, which is definitely one of those jumbo shrimp kind of contradictions, right? <laughs> but he was uh, he was a very you know he got a lot of uh, podcast lip service and uh, Twitter buzz and all that stuff um, early in the season when he was uh, in the rotation. He showed flashes of 
competence, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Um, there was a five-game stretch where he gave up just seven runs in 28 innings. That's a 2.22 ERA. Uh, of course, four of those five starts were Oakland, San Diego, Washington, Miami. Um, so shortly after that, when he started facing actual big league offenses, he you know got roughed up a little more and, and ended up in the bullpen. Um, his Looking at his arsenal, it seems like the problem here is he's really only got one effective pitch, which is a, a really good sweeper that gets 35% whiff rate, which is nice. Uh, but his other offerings, the four-seamer is only 15% whiffs, and then the sinker, as we said earlier, which generally doesn't get whiffs, it gets grounders, but there's only a 13% whiff on the sinker. So he can only get swings and misses on one pitch with any consistency, which is kind of limiting. Um, Ross did also mention Wisniewski as a potential option here. So if Smiley gets the ball first and Smiley gets smacked once or twice, then uh, then maybe it'll be Wisniewski time again. But for now, um, our playing time analysts moved uh, Strowman's innings to Smiley pending uh, further revisions from Dave Ross. I noticed that we also gave a few of Strowman's innings to right-hander Javier Assad, who looked competent to use your phrase in his last couple of starts yeah he's been in middle relief most of the year and kind of a multi-inning role there he, he made an emergency start against the dodgers uh early in the season uh one of his longer outings three innings uh two earned runs allowed five base runners um he and he was the one who filled in for smile one of smiley's starts when ross decided that he couldn't absorb any more of those shots uh, of uh Drew Smiley's poundings. Um, you know, he had a tough outing against the Braves, but, you know, who doesn't get knocked around by the Braves? He actually went three and two-thirds innings and only allowed two earned runs, which against the Braves is practically a victory these days. Um, after that outing, one more earned run over seven innings and a win at Toronto. Two earned runs in six innings against the White Sox. That's obviously a watered-down lineup. Uh, so overall, you know, Rather than doing it by game-by-game uh, game log here, he's got a 270 ERA, a 108 whip across those three recent appearances, but only nine strikeouts and five walks, which is uh, pretty pedestrian over a total of 16 innings. So he also is only kind of stretched out, so might be uh, you know 85-90 pitch guy, even if he does get a start. Uh, or a couple of starts. Um, but, you know, it does seem like, you know, given the attrition here that he is going to hold a couple of spots, uh, going to hold on to that for a couple more spots, um, a couple more turns through the rotation, unless Wesneski displaces him. Any help coming on the farm? Yeah, we checked with our scouting director, Chris Blessing, and he said one name to be aware of is Jordan Wicks, who's their first rounder from the 2021 draft. Uh, in the preseason, we rated him a 7C prospect, which is ceiling of an average rotation member, 50-50 chance of getting to that level. Um, in our preseason org report, he was their number 10 prospect. You know, we didn't think he looked like somebody who could blow hitters away, but he comes with, uh, let's keep using our, our favorite word of the day, competent four-pitch mix underpinned by pretty good command that gives him a chance to succeed as a back-end kind of starter. Minor league career isn't super impressive, a 373 ERA, 122 whip. 28% strikeout rate, 8% walk rate. So you project some attrition on that. If you, can, if you uh, map that over to the majors as an equivalency, you're probably down under 
the 25% strikeout rate to, to, to more the low 20s and the walk rate probably ticks up a little bit toward 10%. And he's 23, so not especially young for AAA and maybe not a ton more growth to project there. But, um, you know, it's a low bar to be uh, to do better than giving up a run in inning as Drew Smiley's been doing for the last four or five starts. So if, if they have to turn here, Wicks is probably the next, the next guy up. And finally, we mentioned Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column about rookies and one National League pitcher made the list, uh, Yuri Perez of Miami. We've talked about him a few times here on Baseball HQ Radio, Ray. What did Ryan say about what, to my eyes, has looked like a pretty impressive first year? Yeah, those are some good eyes you have. Those, I would say pretty impressive. You know, I would give him the, uh, you know, my wife's a teacher, so I see her filling out a lot of uh, second and third grade report cards where they don't necessarily... Uh, you know, do the letter grades, but they'll give things like, you know, exceed expectations, EE, you know, I'll, I'll give, I'll give Yuri Perez an EE here. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he got called up in May and since then it's been a 247 ERA, 54 strikeouts to 15 walks through his first 10 starts. Then they sent him down right before the all-star break, which I know is uh, anybody who had rostered Yuri Perez was you know, ridiculously annoying at the time because it was nothing more than a workload management issue. Um, since, and, you know, so he went down and he made a couple of, you know, he got sort of extended all-star break and then he made a couple of really short starts in the minors as they tried to sort of just keep him warm, I guess is kind of the, kind of the best way to think of it. Um, since he's come back up, it's two starts, eight and two thirds innings and eight earned runs between the two of them, uh, which isn't great, but 12 strikeouts and four walks say the stuff is still kind of there. Um, so overall, even with the, the recent ERA blow there, the, uh, you know, if you fabbed him in May, you're very happy with what you got from him. And what was Ryan's revised outlook taking all of this into account? Yeah. So, you know, Ryan called him, you know, with good reason, the top rookie pitcher in baseball this year with that swing in this stuff, that 15.2% swing strike rate, K minus BB of 20%, the, the skills are there supporting the expected ERA under four. Um, and kind of like I mentioned with Grayson Rodriguez, we still want to see whether uh, Rodriguez can escape the workload management problems next year. But Perez should be there now. He's thrown enough innings that he, unless, you know, unless his season ends tomorrow, that he should now be kind of taking off the training wheels and, you know, just be plugged into that rotation right from the get-go next year and be able to be able to make 30 plus starts so in terms of 2024 outlook there's a lot to like sarah sanchez covers rosters in the national league east for playing time tomorrow at baseball hq and she covered yuri perez when he was recalled she says you got to start him all the time how confident are you given that perez's next start is scheduled at the dodgers yeah, I mean, the Dodgers are red hot, and that's a tough place for, for a kid pitcher to go into, but I'd probably not overthink it and just start them. You know, the strikeouts are there, and I think probably the most comforting factor I'd get from that is, you know, with the way the Marlins are managing him, they're not going to leave him on the mound. You know, if it's going badly, I don't think you're going to see him you know, with, you know, three innings and 12 earned runs or anything like that. Like, you know, like a, what you might think of as like a course field bombing, right? If, uh, if it's going badly, they'll just get him out of there. I would think they're not going to staple, staple their prize rookie arm to the mound. Yeah. Taking one for the team is not something you do with a pitcher like this. They got other guys for that. Yeah. <laughs> Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a week. 
Excellent. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and an analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer. But first, let me highlight some of the great resources of Baseball HQ at the site right now. In this week's skills analysis columns, analyst Stephen Nickrand analyzes exit velocity surgers in the batter's buyer's guide and updates his analysis of home road splits in base performance value in the starting pitcher buyer's guide. And in the bullpen buyer's guide, analyst Doug Dennis reviews the relief pitching of the Cubs, Dodgers, Angels, Pirates, and Blue Jays. Skills analysis is another great resource online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome back to part two. Thank you so much for having me. On the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, you and your colleague and our previous guest, uh, Justin Mason, talked about some players who have had strong second halves on the offensive side, and one of them was Michael Harris of Atlanta. Got off to a dreadful start to the point where, at one point, you earlier this year advised your listeners that they might have to consider dropping him, but boy, he's really turned it around from June on. He's got nine homers, 11 bags. That's a 25-30 kind of pace. Mm-hmm. All of which raises the question for next year's drafts, in what round do you think Michael Harris should be slotted for drafting? Well, let's just say he kind of you know, keeps this trajectory minus a little bit, right? Maybe doesn't stay quite this hot, but remains good for another six weeks for Michael Harris. Our, mine and Justin's biggest issue was taking him in the second, third round, which is where he was going. We didn't agree with that. We didn't think he'd be like the worst player. But then when he was playing poorly, again, we did advocate you might consider dropping him. And we were definitely wrong about that. That was too premature. I, I, I bring it up just to keep us accountable, but at the same time, if you go back and look at how poorly he was playing at the time, if somebody cut him in a 10-teamer when he had a 509 OPS on May 21st, I, I, I don't really blame them. Like It didn't work, but in a 10-teamer, you have to burn and churn. Now, that's very early to cut a pick. In a 10-teamer, I think Michael Harris is probably going closer to around 4 or 5, but even still. He's come all the way back, and if he continues to play as well as he's been recently, I think he's right back in like the fourth, fifth round again in 15-teamers. Honestly, maybe even higher than that. Maybe it's like third round because he's on a great team. I guess the real question is, does anything change to where his batting slot isn't number nine? Because he's going to bat two for a while right now with Ozzy Albies out, but when when they're whole again next year, is he still an eight-nine hitter? And if so... I have a hard time taking him that high uh, because that that even on a great team like Atlanta, that will affect your fantasy numbers. So he will go pretty high next year. I will probably be more in on him than I was this year. I just didn't want to pay full freight for what I thought was a little bit of a flawed profile last year with his plate skills. And it proved right early on. And for the whole, I think it will prove right too. But here in the second half, Michael Harris has been one of the best players. And so we took a little bit of a mea culpa on that, especially for those that we advocated possibly cutting him. I don't know. I thought it was good advice at the time. You know, if you, in any league, in any drop or ad situation, cutting, reserving, whatever, it's all about opportunity cost. What yes. is this guy costing you to stay on your roster that you could improve on somewhere else? And if you looked at your free agent pool and said, oh, look, there's Spencer Steer. I'm willing to take that gamble because Michael Harris is killing me. It works out well. Sometimes it doesn't work out well, but that's the 
price that you pay. Uh, you guys talked about Zach Geloff of Oakland. Boy, I, I had a bid on this guy and I tied and lost on standings. Oh, oh my gosh. That's, tough. I know 26 games in major league baseball after Monday's play. So through his first 13, three home runs, but a heater in the last 13 games, five homers, a 60 home run pace. And the discussion that you guys had was how likely he's going to maintain a 27% home run per fly ball ratio. <laughs> Not too likely, but you pointed out that we should expect that to regress, but also said it's possible he just keeps on banging. So my question is, how does Zach Geloff avoid being bitten by the regression monster? I don't know that he can necessarily avoid it, right? Like if he's playing in the right stadiums and he has the right hit distribution, then uh, then maybe he will you know, keep up at least a 18 to 20% homer to fly ball, which would still be pretty good. League average is around 10, 12%. So if he regressed all the way back down there, that'd be pretty low. Um, one of the main points that we were saying about like he could still stay that hot is because there's only six weeks left. So he time might just run out before Zach Geloff regresses. And with the production that he's putting up right now, I'm at this time of year, I'm less inclined to get too caught up in whether or not he's going to stay hot. And I'm just going to jump on the heater right now and kind of assess it because they're, you just got to pick up the production when it's happening, right? If he had like a 450 Babbitt and a 40% homer to fly ball, okay, that's going to come down. But the Babbitt's only 317. So he can still hit 269 with some speed, even if the power comes down, because the main reason you were getting Zach Geloff wasn't really, I actually ended up getting him on my main event. I was pretty lucky there, but it was for the speed. So if I can get a decent batting average in some bags, even if the power comes back down to where he only hits three, four home runs the rest of the way, I think that's totally fine for what you're paying and the leagues that you're picking Zach Galoff up in. Cause I still only think he's like 12, 12 teamers and deeper 10 teamers, unless it's like, I don't know, unless you use corner middle and five outfielders, he doesn't play outfield, but unless, unless you're paying a full roster, I still think Zach Galoff is pretty fringy in 10 teamers. Um, you know, outside of maybe just putting him in as a band-aid right now, just because 10 teamers are so deep in options, but I really like Zach Galoff in 12s and deeper. You mentioned the stolen bases and he had five of them in that cold period at the start of his major league career. But since he's turned hot, he's only got one bag. So how do you assess stolen bases in this type of situation when you're looking forward? I think it's one of those things where it's like, well, now that he's hitting all these extra base hits, of course, with the home runs, you can't steal. But even if he's ripping doubles, you don't steal third as much as you steal second. He has nine doubles. He even has a triple. You're not going to steal home on that. So maybe it's just a lack of opportunity right now because he is raking so much, Zach Geloff is. So it's one of those situations where it is a funny split, and I noticed that myself. But I'm okay with that. And honestly, because I need the steals more, again, I wouldn't even necessarily hate to see him cool down with some of the power hitting if that means that his times on base are going to be spent more often stealing. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. If you're getting him for steals, I still think there's going to be some running there for Zach Geloff on the A's. You guys both liked Boston first baseman Tristan Cassis back in June when he was hitting under 200, had some home runs and some RBIs, but since June 1st, Boy, he's racked up 13 homers, 29 RBIs. He's batting almost 300. OBP is almost 400. So a full season pace of like 40 homers, 85 RBIs, something like that. So how likely is it that Cassis joins the ranks of elite first baseman in next season's drafts? I think there's a real chance. This was another one of my big breakout picks this year. 
that needed some patience because he's another guy that if you cut him in like a 10, even a 12 at any point in those first three months, I totally get it. And I, I say, don't beat yourself up over that. Our friend Scott Pianowski talks about if you never make a, a, a mistake cut in, in a 10 or 12 teamer, you're probably being too tight with your roster because sometimes you're just going to cut somebody who's playing terribly for the six weeks that you've had them because you've got to get more production in the lineup and they can go Michael Harris style or Tristan Casas. Now Casas was drafted a lot later, so he was an easier cut than somebody like Harris. But if you're never cutting guys like that, you're holding guys too long in those shallower formats. But Casas has been the real deal, the guy that I thought he could be since June. And I really do believe he has the power to be one of those premier uh, first basemen because I also think that he hits the ball well enough consistently that he can have a pretty decent average. He's up at 254 right now. I think the best of what Tristan Casas can be is like a 40 homer hitter who can threaten like a 265, 270 batting average. I know that's not super gaudy, but for a true pure power hitter, that's a pretty good batting average. And I do think Casas can do that with a bunch of oppo hits off of the green monster and then his home runs uh, wrapped around the pesky pole. I'm a big Casas fan both this year and for the future. So if you were setting up your lineup and drafting tomorrow, where in the first base hierarchy would you put Cassis? Probably in like that th the third group, maybe in uh, off the top of my head, I'm going to say like the 12 to 16 range. I'm kind of I'm kind of just ballparking it. It might even be a little bit higher right now because again, I really believe in the power and you can just never have too much power. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, Olsen, Freeman, Alonzo, uh, Goldie, those guys are definitely ahead. I'm a big Nathaniel Lowe guy. I'm sticking with Vladdy Jr., even though he's been a little underwhelming. Um, but I think those are the only guys that I'm like, off the top of my head, are automatically ahead of him. So maybe it's even as early as like first baseman, nine or 10, that I could at least start, I, you know, Steers up there, and I believe in him for the future too. Um, Torgelson's working his way up. I think Torque and Casas are both coming up together and they're working their way into, like I said, that 12 to 16 range. So again, I'm probably missing some guys, but I'm just trying to go off the top of my head. So let's be cautious and put him in the 12 to 16 range instead of going top 10 just yet for Tristan Casas. And of course he doesn't have to worry about getting past Jose Abreu. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Ellie De La Cruz of Cincinnati came up when you guys were talking and you said his slumpy performance since the All-Star break illustrates an important point about guys like him and why you need to keep them in your lineup. What point is Ellie making with his uh, Mendoza line batting average? So the reason I, uh, these guys still stay so valuable is that even during their cold streaks, the little production that they're giving is usually fantasy relevant, meaning even in a cold snap, He's got a few homers and a few stolen bases. Um, now, the stolen bases are lesser because he's definitely not getting on base as often. But I think three of his, like, you know, whatever hits, um, actually six of his 23 hits are for homers. So he's hitting 197, but you still got a 34 homer pace in those 30 games from Ellie De La Cruz. He has two steals only, but that's still an 11 pace, which is still double digits. Like, you're still getting something at his worst and he's two for five by the way so he's actually struggled on the bases but he's still going consistently he's just been caught three times so that's why these power speed guys even with their volatility right because this this giving me a little bit of a early javi baez vibe where you know he has his culture and we know javi baez these days is way worse but like that kind of all or nothing carlos gomez type um even when they're cold they usually sprinkle in 
a bomb or two, a steal or two, even during the cold streak to keep giving you something. Whereas, you know, say somebody like, I'm trying to think of some, this guy hasn't really struggled this year, so it's not a great example, but just think of the player type of like a Masataka Yoshida. He has 12 homers, eight steals in the 300 average. He's actually been having a great year, but I'm talking about this player type, like Alex Verdugo, use his teammate, who's kind of a, a Yoshida light. When Alex Verdugo's cold, what does he give you? Nothing, because if the batting average isn't there, right. he has nine homers and four steals. So you need him to be hitting for batting average. And nobody really hits for batting average all year unquestioned. Everyone has some lulls. So I always want those power speed guys because even when they struggle, they still give you some fantasy goodness. I was listening to the Reds on Sunday and Ellie stole a bag and the announcer said it was his first in like three weeks since mm -hmm. mid-July. How concerned we need to be that maybe there's a red light going up. You mentioned two for five. Is there any chance that the expectation of stolen bases needs to be adjusted downwards. I wouldn't. I wouldn't make that assessment without kind of seeing uh, what the cots look like, right? Because yeah, he did have three cots in that time before the steal on on the thirteenth that you're talking about, August thirteenth. And so, you know, I learned this uh, a couple years ago when I did an assessment on Tommy Edmond. He had had a bunch of caught stealings in a given year, and people were kind of worried, like, oh, are, are they figuring him out on the bases because it, it really wasn't that that great of a. Or, run over the second half or something like that. I can't remember what it was because he's always had great rates. And I looked it up and out of his five caughts, four of them were like real fluky. One was a crazy pickoff, great play by the pitcher. Uh, two of them were just like two of the sickest throws ever that if they're in any other spot, he doesn't get caught. So the nature of the caught stealings matters to me too. Is Ellie making dumb decisions and then getting caught? And so they're going to put a yellow or red light on him. Okay, that's one thing. Or is he just getting caught by some great throws and some great tags? Okay, I chalk that up to some variants, and I'm I'm fine with it. The bottom line is right now he's eight for twenty three and eighteen for twenty three. Excuse me, eighteen for twenty three for Ellie De La Cruz. That's a seventy eight percent success rate. That's a green light all the way. Seventy eight percent is totally fine. So I'm not worried about it in the short term like that. And what I would usually do is go back and actually look at the caught stealings to try to assess if I should be worried about it. Where do you look at them? Um, MLB.tv. Uh, so like I, I would go to his fan graphs or um, baseball reference game log. I would sort by caught stealings to get the dates. And then since I subscribe to MLB at bat, I can just go through and look. And honestly, even if you don't subscribe, Baseball Savant has clips of like dang near every play. They might even have those plays that you can just go look up. So you don't even have to necessarily have MLB at bat to do it, to, to be able to go into the archives. You might just go to Baseball Savant and look them up and then you can see for yourself or go to their um, clips pages. Like you can probably find them on your own, even if you don't subscribe to MLB at bat. But that's what I would normally do when somebody's getting caught a bunch. I want to see what the caughts look like. While you were talking about that, Paul, I, it, struck me that maybe we should be looking at their stolen base successes too, because we all have Absolutely. had the experience of, of watching a guy s steal a base that he should have been thrown out by five steps, but the catcher <laughs> threw it into center field or bounced the throw or the guy dropped it on the tag. And they, of course they don't ever call that an error either. The stolen base things are really interesting in that way, because there's so many ways that are really not skill related for a, yep. for a stolen base to be accomplished or denied. Uh, you and Jason had a spirited discussion about De La Cruz's strike out rate. He's at 35% for the season and went up to 40% since the all-star break. And you guys disagreed about whether a 40% strikeout rate is even a problem. What were the two sides of that discussion? 
yeah, so Justin and I were kind of disagreeing on that. Um, and that's where I kind of invoked the name of Javier Baez. And I know it's hard to bring up a name like that right now because you instantly think of present-day Javier Baez. And that's not who I'm saying that he is. I'm talking about peak Javier Baez, who would have his ups and downs. And it goes back again. And I think we then pivoted to like a head-to-head -head discussion because that's where the week-to-week -week matters more. Again, in Roto, you can set it, forget it. I'll check in with you at the end of the year in most cases. But in head-to-head, -head, you want more of that consistency. And I wonder if somebody like Ellie De La Cruz might be a bit more, like might move down a few spots because of some of that volatility. Now, I did mention that when he's cold, he's still giving you a couple uh, trickles of steals and homers for his production. But if you don't like those guys that can hit like 080 for a week, you know, five, six times a season, then somebody like Ellie De La Cruz might not be the best guy for you. And when you swing and miss that much, I think it's a problem. I thought Justin was downplaying the swing and miss a little bit too much. Um, but with Ellie De La Cruz, I think it's going to be there. And part of it is his size too, right? He's a big guy. He's, he's like 6'3". And so there's a lot of zone for him to cover there. And uh, I think that's just going to be part of it as well. And I also invoked the name O'Neill Cruz, who has been out with an injury right now. But I think those two kind of cut a similar figure and have some of the similar struggles where their swing and miss and lack of walks are going to be are going to lead to volatility with them. Guy that big, I think, is probably a little more vulnerable to the high fastball, which they're calling more for strikes these days too as well. You talked about Jordan Walker and Anthony Volpe in the context of how to properly assess rookies because they're speaking of volatility. What yeah. do we look at? What should we look at when we're trying to figure out how to value the Jordan Walkers, Anthony Volpes, and other rookies? We, I think as a group, and th this was kind of targeted at Justin and I because we had said these sorts of things, um, and I was I was kind of giving Justin a little tough time because he specifically said this about Jordan Walker. I said, you know, maybe we need to be less strident on this notion that as long as they're up and playing, they're going to be unquestionably good. And that was kind of the take that that Justin had with Jordan Walker, right? It, playing time is my only concern. It's like, well, with a rookie, even a rookie like him – you should still be a little bit more cautious about generally the skills. Like there's nobody's that certain. And I think being that strident about things can really um, lead to some over-trusting of guys, right? And Volpe and Walker really fit into that this year because if I told you that they were going to have the guaranteed playing time, you know, at the beginning of draft season, they both would have gone even higher than they did. And Volpe really started to shoot up in drafts once he was locked onto the team. And yet neither of them have really performed anywhere near where their best, where their proponents thought they would. 16 homers and 20 steals for Volpe is nice, but it's with a 212 average. That's terrible. And then Walker only has 11 homers and people, were, and again, I count myself amongst the Walker backers. So I, I'm roasting myself here too but we're like you know if you give me 400 plate appearances i'm getting at least 25 homers or whatever nonsense we were saying well, he's got 305 plate appearances and 11 homers so the bottom line takeaway for me is to just be more cautious on rookies and stop being so strident that the playing time is the only thing that they need to succeed the majors are hard and I just needed a little bit of a reality check after last year's huge rookie crop. And I knew it was going to happen, and I still didn't stop myself from it, Patrick. I knew with all the overwhelming rookies we had last year that we were going to overassess them this year, and I fell right into the, the trap even though I saw it coming. You know what I think it is sometimes? We all want to be the guy who was smart enough to have drafted Bingo. Jordan Walker somewhere so that we can brag about it in our columns or on our podcast. You are 
a hundred percent correct. And I fall victim to that too. No, me too. And it, it, it's just part of it, whether you create content or you just want to brag on the text chain with your buddies and say, ha I got Volpe and he's got a 30, 30 season idiots. Uh, but instead <laughs> he's hitting two twelve, and now you feel like a goof for drafting him in the sixth round. So no, I think that's a hundred percent uh, a major factor. It's not. It's not the only factor, but it, it is a major factor of wanting to be right, and that's why we see these teams that are consistently successful. These folks that maybe aren't in the content creation industry, but that are really well known NFBC players. They draft some of the most boring teams every year. Oh, yeah. Crusty. 28 to 32 year old veterans that people aren't really that interested in because they produce and they have six, seven, eight, 10 years in the league. So you have a better expectation of what they're going to do. It makes a ton of sense when you step back and think about it. But then when you get at a draft table and you see the shiny new toys, you keep reaching for the shiny new toys. So the discipline to not just go for the shiny new, I think is a, is a great fantasy skill. And it's one that I've been trying to hone, but I still, I still fall for youngster, players uh pretty consistently i'm not i'm not going to pretend that i'm above it at all i've had dave potts uh, a really excellent fantasy baseball player on Brilliant the pot player. a couple of times and i asked him about this very topic one time and he said you know who my favorite player is ever brian reynolds there you go because you always get brian reynolds in the sixth round and he's always a third round player and nobody nobody likes him because he plays in yeah. an off you know, backwater team and all of that it doesn't have a carrying skill right like yeah d d Plays on Pittsburgh, and I know they had a little flourish early in the year, but then they fell apart. And um, and and doesn't have like a forty homer, forty steal, three fifty average. Like he just does everything pretty well, and that's a prototypical Dave Potts player. And I say that with love because he's a fantastic fantasy player, and he's really smart, and he epitomizes uh, exactly what I'm talking about here. Seventeen homers, six or seven bags this year, and he's you know he'll finish up with twenty five and ten and hit two seventy and just be real valuable to everybody for sixth round and next year nobody will draft him again unless he Correct. gets you know free agented out to the Dodgers or someplace. No, they they, they signed him. Oh, did they? They signed him. Remember? Yeah, no, they, I don't. they signed him at the beginning of the year, so he's he's staying with uh, with Pittsburgh. So he'll continue to be kind of the forgotten guy there. And what's interesting about Reynolds specifically is I think that team, like again, they showed a little flourish early in the year. I think they are going to take a little step forward next year. I think they are making moves to improve that team. So then the runs and ribbies can get better with Reynolds as the other eight guys get better around him. A full season of Jack Sawinski, Henry Davis. Uh, I still have love for Cabrian Hayes. Leover Pagaro has been interesting down the stretch here. And they've got a lot of prospects coming up too. So yeah, I think uh, Reynolds will continue to be a bargain and somebody worth picking. I think Pittsburgh could be next year's Baltimore when I look at them for exactly Agreed. the same reasons. You finish last often enough, you just have to stumble into you some draft You have to start talent. getting some gems. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. And Paul, also on the pod, you and Jason did a quick hold or fold. I love this segment on some struggling starters. And you started with Reed Detmers, who had an ERA over 10 through his last six starts, three of those games were under five innings and seven earned runs. How did you guys vote on whether to hold or fold Reed Detmers? This was a tough one because I'm a big Reed Detmers backer, both coming into the season and throughout the year. I'm just, he's one of my guys, but you got to be honest about your guys, even if you love them. And it came out as a fold for me right now. I don't think he can be trusted. The homers are through the roof. He has three, seven earned run outings within his last six starts. And two of them were against really good teams, the Dodgers in Houston on the road. Uh, the other was against Seattle, who has a solid ball club, but they're not a world beater offensively. And then he did well against Pittsburgh, 
uh, and then mediocre against Toronto and mediocre against Houston in the second start. So the bottom line was, I think you got to move off of him, especially in the shallower formats. 15s, we're not usually playing hold or fold for 15s because it's really hard to cut anybody who is even moderately talented, even with a 527 ERA. But in 10s and 12s, I think you got to move off of Reed Detmers right now. There's not enough time to keep taking these pummelings. And in 15s, I'm still at least sitting him. I might not cut him because there just might not be anything worth picking up off the wire. But I don't think you can start Reed Detmers right now. Patrick, I'm not the biggest fan of the sit this guy until I see something good because I don't want to miss something great you know, on my bench, but that's where I'm exactly at right now with Reed Detmers. He gets a trip to Texas today and then home against Cincinnati a week from today. We're recording on uh, 816. So you, everyone will know what he did against Texas by then. Uh, but I just don't think you can start Reed Detmers right now. And as much as I like him for the long term, in the short term, I'm out. Mitch Keller, speaking of Pittsburgh, was something of a tout darling through his first 10 starts. A 244 ERA, 097 whip. 30% strikeout rate, 6% walk rate, 56 innings, tremendous. And then the wheels started wobbling through his next eight starts, and then the wheels fell off completely over his last six, uh, 771, 183 decimals, 21% strikeout rate, uh, two eight earned runs, duds, six earned run dud. Where did you and Jason come down on holding or folding on Mitch Keller? Yeah, this is another one where we start leaning toward toward the fold. And again, sit in 15s, don't cut unless there's something out there. It was nice to see him have a good start against Cincinnati uh, since we did that, I believe. Or no, no, it was the we talked about him, I think, the day after that start. So he does now have two better starts in a row. He was okay against Atlanta and then good against Cincinnati. So that was nice to see. But at the same time, it's a situation right now where I just I can't consistently start Mitch Keller. And one of the concerns I had, I, I was also pro what he was doing early on. So I'm not going to sit here and reverse course and pretend like I wasn't uh, touting him. But one of my concerns was that we still haven't seen any dominance from him. The strikeout rate is up, but the swinging strike rate was basically the same as last year at a meager 9%. And until we see a consistent swing and miss from Mitch Keller, that volatility is going to be there. We saw it last year. We're seeing it this year. It is a better ER, uh, is a better whip than last year at 128 versus 140, but the ERA is up now from 391 to 427. I still think this is a growth year, but by and large, I'm sitting Keller right now. I'm cutting him in shallower leagues and I'm going to reassess for next year. But if that swing and miss pitch doesn't develop, I think Keller's going to kind of live in this area as a high threes to mid fours pitcher, which is going to be good, not great. And you stream him a lot at home because of a good park, but you try to avoid him against difficult teams. And that's where I'm at right now with, with Mitch Keller. I looked up his PQS log at baseball HQ. It's a system for assessing game to game starts and a five is a perfect one. And a zero is an imperfect one, shall we say? And I think it was zero, two, one, 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 three, <laughs> a three against oh Cincinnati. Yeah. It's Goodness. terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, Jesus Lazardo came out of nowhere at the start of this season and still has an ERA under four and a whip of 124 with a 28% strikeout rate. But his last six starts, the ERA is up to around six. The whip is over 150. The K rate's holding, but the home runs allowed are up. Are you holding or folding on Jesus Lazardo? Holding here. Um, I believe it was with a sit recommendation across the board, tens and up uh, against Houston, which I believe takes place again today. So we'll have, uh, we'll be in the books by the time folks are listening to this. He faces off against Justin Verlander. But 
Um, I, I trust his skills a bit more. He's got more of a track record than the other two guys right now in terms of success, both uh, within this year and previously. He was really good for 100 innings last year and showed some things back in the 2020 shortened season as well for 59 innings, despite the dud 2021. So with Lazardo, it's a lull right now, and it is definitely bad, but it's not enough to cut completely. I think he's just having some struggles because he, too, has modest command. It's better than the the 40 and, and 30 guys that we were talking about earlier, but he's probably a below-average command guy, so probably a grade 45, 40-ish, um, despite a good walk rate, and that's the difference between command and control. He, he can find the zone. Jesus Lazardo has decent control, but his command, putting the ball where he wants, in and out of the zone that's a bit of a problem i think he's just going through a lull right now i'm staying i'm i'm holding the course with uh with jesus lazardo you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with paul sporer from rotographs and the sleeper and the bust podcast and paul i always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes for the rest of the season let's start with your boons these are players who look like good value down the stretch who's a batter who could be a boon I'm looking at Matt Walner out in Minnesota, left-handed power hitter. Uh, I think he's pretty interesting. He's been off to a wonderful start, nine homers and a 140 OPS plus in his first 38 games this year. He did get a little taste last year, 65 plate appearances. We're not going to make too much of it. And even this is a small sample at 121, but the power's there. This looks like somebody that... Um, actually, Matt Walner's kind of looking to me like what I thought Trevor Larnock was going to be, which was a real power threat uh, with a decent enough batting average. Unfortunately for Larnock, he's he's wound up hitting for some tough batting averages uh, without even showing as much power as I think he has there too. So I like Matt Walner, and I also like him for the future because Max Kepler and Joey Gallo are both free agents. I don't see. I don't think there's any way that they keep both of those guys. So I think Walner has some dynasty and keeper league appeal as well. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they actually DFA uh, Joey Gallo this year. Wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me one bit. Uh, who's a pitcher you think who could be a rest of season boon? I'm going to use the one that I used when Justin and I did this um, going into the second half because, and he has been pretty good, but I'm also going to give a secondary one, but I was really big on Christopher Sanchez with Philadelphia and I'm staying the course with him. It's working so far. So I I definitely don't want to veer off course from that. He's still pretty available in shallower formats. He's been pretty scooped up in 15 teamers, but if you're in shallower leagues, I'm a sucker for prospects and he's 26. He's graduated off of prospect lists, but he's still a prospect in that he has 111 major league innings, right? So he, he's still very much a work in progress, but I'm a sucker for, for young arms with a ready-made changeup, and he's got one. And I just love that because that's usually the last piece that comes into place for a pitcher. And Christopher Sanchez for Philadelphia has that. And then another guy, and again, I, I, this is my second time bragging on myself, so I apologize. I need to be humbled. But the beginning of the year in my uh, pitchers to watch, I did you know four breakout pitchers. My deep lottery ticket guy, He didn't even have a rotation spot, but I just said, keep an eye on Cole Reagans for the Texas Rangers. And that's where he was at the time. Never really got going for them, but he trade he was traded to KC for Aroldis Chapman, and he's become the flavor of the month recently with uh, three really good starts and then an okay one. He struggled a bit against St. Louis, and they're still a good offense uh, to get guys. But I really like Cole Reagans both for the immediate term and for the future. This dude's a live arm, former first rounder. I want to say he was a double TJ guy, which is why he's been kind of derailed since he was drafted back in 2016. But he's got his velo all the way back, and I really, really like. Cole Reagans. So two young lefties, Christopher Sanchez, Cole Reagans. I like both of them for the rest of the year and the future. Let's go to your Baines. These are players you think will be disappointments for the rest of the season. On the batting side, who do you think could be a rest of season Bane? 
this one's already kind of gotten started and it's a little bit of little bit of an obvious one if i'm being honest but jaron duran was somebody that i was a bit nervous on with that crazy babbit it was always going to come down he was he was toting you know mid 400s there for a while and you're just going to have a hard time keeping a 400 plus babbit it's starting to regress a bit now he is one of those guys that should be able to still give you some steals even when he's struggling but i don't think he has enough power and i do worry that the batting average could be a struggle down the stretch if you need the steals you can hold with jaron duran but i will point out that he doesn't have a single steal in august so during his cold streak we haven't seen the steals yet but he does strike me as somebody that as long as he doesn't keep hitting 175 the rest of the way, should still give you some trickles of steals. But bottom line is, I still think it's a flawed plate approach uh, that I worry about with his swing and miss and lack of walks. So Jaron Duran is my fade down the stretch, my my, my uh, bane rather. Finally, who's a pitcher who could be a bane? This one's a bummer to me because I did not see this coming at all this year and people are already kind of you know, moving away from him. Uh, I still have a hard time cutting this guy in deeper leagues, but it is Christian Javier. I'm at least reserving him, but I am open to cutting in shallower formats. He just doesn't look like himself at all right now. And there is some track record of quality, some really high quality. So it does make him a tough cut. But if you are chasing in a 10 or 12 teamer right now, and you see somebody out there like a Cole Reagans or a Christopher Sanchez, you know, I'm going to go for them over Javier right now. I don't have any trust in what he's able to do. He was already kind of a short inning type of guy, even at his best. And now you're talking about sub five innings because of the struggles and the home runs are through the roof lately. He has allowed two homers uh, or more, or excuse me, just two homers in three of his last seven, and then at least a homer in seven of the eight starts there. So it, it's 10 homers in 39 innings recently for uh, Christian Javier. So I'm really worried about him. Again, it's a sit in 15s. He's still too good to fully cut, but in 10s and 12s, I could cut Christian Javier for the right arm. <laughs> for his right arm, yeah, it's the last now, I, I, As I said it, I was like, it made it sound like I was cutting him for somebody's arm. Uh, no, no, <laughs> Man, for you, the proper uh, player on the wire, I would cut Christian Javier, as crazy as that sounds. It doesn't sound crazy, especially I have him on my tout team and I can't cut him because there's nothing to replace him with. And yeah. I'm, I'm in a race in wins and strikeouts and I just grit my teeth and hope for the best because the ERA and whip, I'm also right near the top and I need those points too. So it's, it's really tough to be a Christian Javier owner this year. And I, I don't understand it because up till this year, I thought he was like a good solid SP two for fantasy purposes. And that's where he seemed to be getting drafted a lot. And I don't know. So I, there, there people, I suspected an injury, Paul, but I don't know. That That's my concern too, because it's so far afield from what we've seen out of Christian Javier. There are people calling him like baby strider this year. And I, I, I bought into that. I agreed, you know, cause he has two excellent pitches, the fastball and the slider. Um, and, you know, looking like one of those guys that even though we worry about guys with only two pitches, he was so good making it work that we were all buying in. I don't really know what's going on with, with Christian Javier. It's scary. I understand a lot of people are, are going to be kind of forced into starting him. So if you are, I get it. Don't cut him for like some middle reliever. It has to be a shallow league where there's a legit starter out there. But if you reserve him, I totally understand that. The thing that really is disappointing for me this year with him is last two years, he's been over 30% strikeouts. This year, it's down around 23 or 24, something like that. And it makes such a huge difference. And not not just in the results, Paul, but I listen to the games or I every so often watch the games. And the problem is, not only is he not getting the strikeouts, he's throwing an 
awful lot of pitches to walk guys. So many. Yep. And he's uh, he's at a hundred a hundred and five. Last time I listened, I think he was a hundred and five pitches through five innings. And of course, they have to pull him in a game where he was competitive. And I think Houston ended up winning, but he didn't get the win. It's a it's a real mess with Christian Javier, that's for sure. And I've got to hang on to him, like I said. So fingers crossed. To Paul Spores, Boons, Matt Walner of Minnesota, Christopher Sanchez of Philadelphia, and Cole Reagans of Kansas City. His Baines, Jaron Duran of Boston, Christian Javier of Houston. Uh, Paul, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your always excellent work. Thank you so much, uh, Patrick. I appreciate you having me on. I love the show. I've been listening to it for years now. I'm over at Fangraphs, Fangraphs.com. Um, I'm on the fantasy side. You can go fantasy.fangraphs.com. Post on my daily SP chart there Monday through Friday, the podcast three times a week, uh, and as well as my chats on Wednesday afternoons. And thank you for making a little time schedule difference for us so that I can do my chat. You can also find me on Twitter at Spore, that's S-P-O-R-E-R, and Twitch, twitch.tv slash Spore, where I uh, uh, stream baseball video games like MLB The Show. Out of the Park Baseball, I've been playing a lot more this year, which is a simulator. If you're a fantasy nerd, you would love out-of-the-park baseball. If you ever played Stratomatic, it's basically a computerized version of Stratomatic. So a lot of team building and building organizations there. And I stream four or five times a week, uh, twitch.tv slash Sporer. I have to confess, I don't have any idea what Twitch is, but I see that lots of people are getting involved in it. What is it? It's a video streaming platform, and, and you can do a lot of different things there. It started off as a video game platform, and almost exclusively people were playing video games. But I've done fantasy drafts there. I stream my main event draft um, when I used to do the main event online. Now I go to Vegas for it. Uh, I've streamed Tout Wars draft before, so you can do fantasy drafts. I do um, like usually three times a week lately. I've been doing a box score morning show where I just come on in the morning, and I go through the box scores, and I interact with my chat. They ask different questions. We get on different tangents. It's almost like a live podcast um th those shows because i end up just talking about all sorts of different players and doing different things so you can do a lot of different stuff on twitch um that that isn't video game related so don't think that if you don't like video games there's nothing for you on twitch and i'll tell you i've had people in my chat that don't even have a video game console they're there for the baseball talk and to hang out because we're always talking baseball um, so whether you're a video gamer or not i think you'll you would enjoy hanging out there just chatting baseball is there a fee no, you can watch for free. Um, you can subscribe to support the streamer uh, and you can get like a little few perks kind of related to Twitch, but it is all free to watch. There are ads, but um, if you just want to come hang out for free, you don't have to chat. You can just lurk. We got people that are in there. You know, they'll, they'll text me later. Hey, I enjoyed your stream. I say, oh yeah, I didn't see you in there. So, yeah, I didn't chat. You know, you can just hang out. You don't have to participate. Uh, it's kind of what you want to make of it. There's people that are in there chatting all the time. There's people that are in there just lurking, hanging out and everybody's welcome. I always thought it was a bit unfortunate that people who hang around in message boards and th those kinds of things going all the way back to Usenet, and if they didn't post or didn't participate actively, the word that we chose to call them was lurkers. Yes. <laughs> like lurking. It just sounds kind of creepy. Like you know, it somebody does sound hanging creepy. around a playground or is, something. The guy's lurking over there. I got to yeah, call the cops. Lurkers over here. No, it's funny you say that because it is such an ingrained uh, term for the internet culture, but it, d it does seem... Like hey, they got those creeps over there lurking, <laughs> but yeah, the 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 not what can call them non chatters then the folks that don't want to get in but they just want to read and participate and listen uh, that way that's totally fine. Uh, and I, I I stress that because I know some channels and I I don't advocate this if you are a Twitch streamer like when you're starting out and you've only got a X number of viewers, they will go into the viewer list and kind of call out the people that are in there not in a negative way but just as like hey I see so and so in here. 
some people don't want to be known, right? They just want to hang out on Twitch. And I think that's fine. So that's why I point out that lurkers will not be exposed as, and have to come out of the woods to talk. If you guys want to hang out on the uh, in the shadows there and just watch the baseball, that by all means, feel free to do that. Yeah, shadows has a, a slightly better connotation. Maybe <laughs> we need to start uh, changing the jargon. Working, as long as they're not lurking in any uh, in any areas, they shouldn't be. If you're just lurking in a Twitch stream, that's fine. And you mentioned out of the park baseball. I understand from somewhere, maybe off your Twitter feed, you've got a content position of some kind there now. Yes. So they have a card collecting mode called Perfect Team. And it's a, it's a basically a fantasy game mode where you collect these virtual player cards. And this spans all of baseball history. Your lineup can construct can consist of, you know, uh, 1921 Babe Ruth and a 2021 Mike Trout. And so you build your lineup and then you play against people. You're simmed against people over the course of a regular season. Monday through Friday, every day constitutes a month of the the regular season and then Sunday is the playoffs. And so I'm the content director for that. I create all the cards that come out. So like if there's a season of a certain player you really liked Patrick and you're like, Hey man, I just, I love Justin Turner's 2021. I'm only saying him cause I pulled up my uh, browser and he was on there and you're like, I really love that 2021 season. Can you make a card of it? Uh, now I don't take requests or whatever, but you could say like, this is my favorite card season ever. And I can make a card of that. And then he's on your team playing as the 2021 version of Justin Turner. So it, it's a lot of fun. It's another way to play basically a fantasy type game, a team building team management type of game. And it's called perfect team on out of the park baseball. And you can play for free or you can put in money to try to, juice your team if you want there's there both avenues are available so if if there's a 2021 justin turner card is there also a, like a 2018 justin turner card there can be it, it basically kind of depends well in, in this case on me because i am the content director and i will have multiple cards of different players especially if they're different right like um christian yelich for example he has two premium cards because his best season in miami was one player type right a heavy ground ball batting average type guy with a little pop and some speed and defense and then there was the mvp in milwaukee which was a power stud you know top of the scale type guy so you can create different cards i wouldn't create like three different versions of a guy where he doesn't change really at all right but guys that kind of have evolved over their career to be different player types i love getting the different cards of them out there to show how they've evolved when you said uh 19, whatever it was, Babe Ruth and Mike Trout. The first thought I had when you started describing what was going on was Mike, uh, was Babe Ruth versus, uh, Shoei Otani. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to bring up Adam Adovino saying that he could have struck out Babe Ruth. Yeah. Like having Babe Ruth cards with the Otani cards are great. Now, unfortunately we can't have Barry Bonds, his rights. He controls his own rights. Other guys are part of the players union. And so you, if you get the players union license, you can use them. But Barry Bonds, unfortunately we cannot have him without dealing with him directly. And he wants like a billion dollars for his rights. So we have pretty much everybody, but Barry Bonds, but it's a lot of fun. You can build an all dead ball team. Patrick, I learned about so many players. I had no idea of through this job and it's, we know how rich and wonderful baseball's history is. And this job has just made me appreciate it all that much more. I think I've mentioned it here on Baseball HQ Radio in the past, but I got my start in fantasy baseball playing a Sports Illustrated board game with my best friend, both of us very big baseball fans. And 
you basically had a very small deck of cards, but they were all Hall of Famers. And so you would That's just deal sweet. the cards out at random. And so you, Babe Ruth was one of them. Henry Aaron was one of them. And you would move the guys around and, and basically whoever had Babe Ruth won to the extent that we of actually course. took the card out of the, out of the that deck because sense. it was, it was useless. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Those kind of sim games are, are a lot of fun. And I, I love them. If you're, if you're looking for somebody to make a card of, if you don't already have, may I suggest 1976 Joe Morgan? Oh, it's so funny that you mentioned that, Patrick. And again, this is going to come out on Friday, so people will already know because our content drops on um, uh, on Thursdays. Joe Morgan is coming out tomorrow. Oh, no kidding. And I think, oh, I think it's actually the 1977 season. Let me see real quick. 76 uh, was his second MVP year, I think. 76 was his. It is 76. Yeah. That's so crazy that you mentioned that. That's Isn't it? literally coming out tomorrow, Patrick. Well, anybody who plays this game or anybody who's interested in it, go look at Joe Morgan's 1976. And boy, Monster. wouldn't you have loved to have him on your fantasy team that you're 100 plus runs and 100 plus RBIs. I forget how many stolen bases, but a lot and home runs. 60. 60 bags. 27 homers as well, 444 on base. And again, with, with out of the park, you're building a real baseball team, right? Like you, you're putting your one to nine lineup, like on base percentage matters a big deal. So like this Joe Morgan is going to come out tomorrow. People are going to be putting him at the top of their lineup as like a major contributor. It's going to be one of the best cards out. I can't believe you just, that's the one player that you randomly say, <laughs> and he's literally coming out tomorrow. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Nothing random about it. He's my favorite baseball player ever. Uh, I was a huge, I am and still, uh, uh, but always have been a big, big Cincinnati fan. And it stems back to the big red machine. Actually, it goes all the way back to the early seventies when they had uh, Lee May and guys like that. And uh, Morgan came along later in trade, but we do go on. Uh, we should let you go. Thanks again. Are you going to be in first pitch Arizona? Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it for the world. All right. Well, I'll see you there. Anybody who comes to first pitch, make sure you look up Paul, any panel that he's on, you do the pod live uh, mm -hmm. the sleeper in the bus pod, a, a live presentation. That's always a million laughs. So Paul, I, I can't thank you enough for being on again. It's really such a pleasure to talk baseball with you. And I really am grateful. Patrick, thank you so much. I love being on talking with you. Like I said, I've listened to the show for years, so it's always an honor to be on. Thank you. And I'll see you in a few months. Paul Sporer writes for Fangraphs and co-hosts the sleeper in the bus podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and My Extra Innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The Baseball HQ scouting team has comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break a fantasy season. This week, analyst Chris Blessing continues his voyage through the low minors in his Eyes Have It column, reporting on Milwaukee right-hander Bradley Blaylock and Cubs left-hander Jackson Ferris. And the Daily Call-Ups report looks at a potential Kansas City closer in right-handed pitcher John McMillan, a potential stud outfielder in San Francisco prospect Wade Meckler, and a potential impact infielder in Tampa's Oslavis Basobe. Comprehensive prospect coverage is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Now, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and really they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, 
We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, player injury analysis in the Big Hurt and Team Injury reports. I mentioned that prospect coverage. Gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points, Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at updates on St. Louis shortstop Mason Wynn and Detroit infielder Colt Keith is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. It will be interesting to see what MLB teams do over the last six weeks of the season and how that might create opportunities for fantasy managers looking to make a push to win their league titles. Over the past several months, we've seen some teams like the Orioles and the Reds be aggressive in promoting their top prospects, and several of them like Ellie De La Cruz, Matt McClain, Andrew Abbott, Jordan Westberg, and Grayson Rodriguez have become key contributors as both teams make a push to secure a spot in the postseason. Meanwhile, other teams continue to operate under an older model that preaches patience even if a player is doing well in the high minors. Trying to read the tea leaves can be a frustrating proposition for fantasy managers as they scour the daily call-up reports and try to manage their fab dollars to find that prospect that might lead them to the promised land. In previous editions of the Minor League Minute, we've taken a look at several players who have not yet been called up, but are worth revisiting as Major League teams try to figure out their rosters down the stretch. One player worth watching is the Tigers' Colt Keith. The Tigers whiffed on their attempt to trade Eduardo Rodriguez and have been struggling all season to find a viable everyday third baseman. Already they've tried Zach Short, Nick Maton, Isan Diaz, Andy Abanez, and most recently Matt Beerling at the hot corner. Maton, who has seen the most action, has been one of the worst players in the league on both sides of the ball, posting a 600 OPS while logging a negative 10 outs above average. Meanwhile, Colt Keith, now a top 50 prospect, is hitting 303 with a 370 on base percentage and a 499 slugging percentage with 27 doubles and 19 home runs between double and triple A. Presumably, Keith will enter the 2024 season as the Tigers' everyday third baseman, and it would seem reasonable that the club will want to get him some MLB at-bats to help ease that transition. Why it hasn't happened sooner could have more to do with the club wanting to give him a chance to win the 2024 AL Rookie of the Year award, thereby landing the team an extra draft pick, than it does with Keith not being ready for the majors. The Cardinals traded away some of their key pieces at the trade deadline, but still have a core of talented and valuable big league players, And while Tommy Edmond remains an above-average defender, he's not been as good this year as he was in 2021 or 2022, and Nolan Gorman remains a below-average defender at second base. Given that, it would not be surprising to see the club take an extended look at their top prospect, Mason Wynn. Wynn is just off the IL, and for the year is hitting .283 with a .356 on base percentage and a .465 slugging percentage with a career-high 17 home runs to go along with 17 stolen bases. He's also a plus defender with great range and a cannon for an arm. 
Others to keep an eye on down the stretch include the Orioles' Heston Kierstad, the Dodgers' Michael Bush, the Cubs' Pete Crow Armstrong, and the Twins' Brooks Lee. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Scouting Team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. And here with a look at San Diego catcher Ethan Salas is Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. He's a catcher who is flush with talent and one to hold on to in dynasty leagues until he shows us exactly what he can do, according to Baseball HQ's Trevor Huth in his June 20th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com. Check this out. Through his first 196 professional minor league at-bats, San Diego Padres international catching prospect Ethan Salas has batted a solid 265 with 9 home runs and 5 steals. Not bad for a 17-year-old. Wait, what? That's right. Signed on January 15, 2023 as a 16-year-old international free agent for $5.6 million of the Padres' $5.8 million base signing pool, or approximately 96% of their pool money, Solace represented the largest international bonus in the hard cap era, according to the Athletics' Dennis Lynn on March 12th. In fact, John Heyman wrote the New York Post on March 2nd that it's rare under the new system where a team uses all, or almost all, its bonus money on one international star, adding that Solace looks like a superstar in waiting, and seems to be, can't miss. Then again, it's also rare for a 17-year-old to be playing at the single-A level or at high-A Fort Wayne, where he was recently promoted on August 8th. That's why 17-year-old San Diego Padres potential superstar catcher, Ethan Salas, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer, especially if he's still available in your dynasty league. Nevertheless, he's the best amateur catcher I've ever seen, high school or college, what an scout quoted by Heyman said, further predicting that Salas is going to be a star for the Padres as a teenager, note that age, and he'll be a 10-year All-Star. The Athletics' Keith Law exclaimed on April 4th that Salas looks like a superstar in the making. I can't believe this kid is 16. Remember, Salas was ranked as MLB Pipeline's number one international prospect for 2023. Yet despite San Diego's heavy investment, according to MLB Pipeline's 2023 prospect rankings bio, Padres officials routinely come back saying they believe it was worth going almost all in on Salas, who could be a rare five-tool catcher. More importantly, consider this. Again, referencing John Heyman's March 2nd Post article, the debate in Padres camp is whether Salas will make it to the majors to become their full-time catcher when he's 18 or 19. But one exec trumped the others, according to Heyman, by predicting that he could even be a September call-up this season. That exec was kidding, at least we think so, speculated Heyman. Even so, September, much like his 18th birthday, isn't that far away for 17-year-old San Diego Padres potential superstar, Ethan Salas, is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week... I want to talk about the remarkable resurgence of Lance Lynn in Los Angeles. On July 26th, right-hander Lance Lynn started his 21st game with the White Sox, facing the crosstown rival Cubs in Wrigley Field. It didn't go well. 
Lynn gave up seven hits, two walks, and seven earned runs in just four and two-thirds innings, striking out five. He left the game with two out in the fifth and runners at first and third. Remarkably, he left with the lead, although the Sox eventually lost the game. At that point in the season, Lynn had a 647 ERA and a 146 whip. He was allowing opposing hitters an 837 OPS against, and he had a 6-9 one-loss record. At age 36, Lance Lynn looked pretty much washed up for fantasy purposes. Then, at the trading deadline, he was sent to the Dodgers, who were so beset by injuries, so desperate for starting pitchers, that they, well, they traded for Lance Lynn. And since hitting Hollywood, Lance Lynn looks like the Dodgers rotation should include Daniel Ponce de Leon, because Lynn looks like he took a dip in the fountain of youth, becoming the Lance Lynn of 2019 through 21, when he had three straight top 10 Cy Young finishes, a combined 326 ERA 114 whip, and a 21% strikeout minus walk rate. In his four starts with the Dodgers so far, Lynn has three wins, the first win of which started an 11-game streak for the team, and the last start of which, although he didn't win it, he left a shutout in the seventh of what turned out to be the most recent win in that 11-game streak. He has a 144 ERA and 040 whip with Los Angeles. He's allowing an opposing batting average way under 200 and opposing OPS of 587. Well, what's the fantasy significance of all of this? Part of Lynn's resurgence has been pretty good fortune on batted balls. In Chicago, a 33% hit rate. In Los Angeles, 21%. In Chicago, a 62% strand rate. In L.A., 100%. And in Chicago, a 41% flyball rate and a 21% home run per flyball rate. In L.A., it has been 46% flyballs with a 20% home run per flyball rate. So more flyballs, same home run per flyballs, fewer home runs. I thought maybe part of the better luck might be better defense in Los Angeles, but in fact both the White Sox and the Dodgers are pretty even in team hit and strand rates. The home run per fly ball change is relatively minor, and ballpark effects don't explain it. So it might just be luck. And as Paul Sporer and I discussed earlier in the show, while we can expect luck to regress over the long run, there really isn't a long run left in this season so counting on or expecting regression isn't entirely warranted, especially when some of Lance Lynn's skills have edged up. For the White Sox, he had an ex-fip right around 4, in L.A., 3.30. For Chicago, a 27% strikeout rate, Los Angeles, 31%. For the White Sox, 8% walk rate, Dodgers, 6%. In Chicago, a 19% strikeout minus walk, in Los Angeles, 25%. And in Chicago, 39% of his fly balls were hard hit. In Los Angeles, 35%, which does help explain the decline in home run per fly balls. But the last consideration is what has come to be known in fantasy baseball analysis as the narrative. That is, maybe a grizzled vet like Lance Lynn, playing out the end of his career, isn't able to get revved up starting for a hapless White Sox squad that's 14 games out of first place in a weak American League Central and 18 and a half games out of the third wildcard slot. But move him to a team that's 10 and a half in front of its division opponents and within four games of the top record in the whole league, maybe that's a little easier to get revved up about. 
Now, Lance Lynn isn't available in any of my mixed leagues, but some of the managers in your leagues might not buy this narrative. They might look at the overall record and decide that Lynn is what he looks like and what they're going to get, a 5-plus ERA guy running out the string and getting a little bit of temporary luck in Los Angeles. And in fact, they might be right. But if the cost isn't too high, it feels to me like Lance Lynn might be a bet worth making. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio almost every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul is a ubiquitous presence in fantasy baseball media, really smart, really aware, a great analyst, and always lots of fun here on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy at BaseballHQ.com. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Pods, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. And remember, Stitcher is closing as of the 29th of August, so if you're using Stitcher to find Baseball HQ Radio, you're going to have to find another alternative. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Nick Pollock from PitcherList.com. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts, including Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs, and Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a columnist at The Athletic. Plus, we'll have all the usual great stuff, our news analysis, Baseball HQ commentaries, and Nick Pollock on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. 
From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.